G'day, folks. It's the coach, and I am so excited to be back live. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a couple of weeks since I've done a live show talking Age of Sigma, and I thought, what better way to kick off the live show than with an absolute legend in our community, uh, somebody who's been playing the gut-busting, dad bod, beast claw rating. He's the man who knows everything. It's Haywo Twitch. Good evening. All right, I'll, I'll do all the work then. Uh, so, hey, whoa, Twitch, uh, if you don't know, actually, you've, you've kind of dropped the Twitch part, even though your Twitter handle does still have Twitch on it. Yeah, yeah I made clearly the, you're not hey, whoa, YouTube. Yeah, I made the Twitch handle a long time ago when I was still streaming, but then I decided to start streaming again, so here we are. It all worked out in the end. I stream every uh, every Monday, 6 p.m. Come, as, come uh, as the Lion King one. You know? As the Lion King said, it's the circle of life. Yeah, it really uh, I'm is. just got to get myself a, a lion and go up to a cave and kind of, you know, we've done the full circle. But for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Joe is uh, a, a, a YouTuber who, more importantly, has been a uh, ogre player for a long, long time. He stuck through it through the good times the mostly bad times there has been flashes in the pan where it's been good times but you have been consistent and you've done a lot of great content about the ogres you've talked a lot about the ogres and i'm excited to understand a little bit more about what you see about the army the strengths in the army how you think about your list design and then how you incorporate some of those rules into your list building and your play style. So um, that's what we're going to do today. Uh, if you don't don't subscribe to Haywo, if you're not uh, a part of his community yet, you are a mad person. Go and smash that subscribe button, um, please. Go do it. It's do it now. Do it right now. This very yeah. Second. Do those those but metrics. People all, are, the, all the thumbs and the and the subs. You know, click the buttons. They tell me that that's good to say. That. So. What, what do you do? Like, subscribe, yeah, yeah. Uh, visit visit my OnlyFans. I mean, Patreon. Don't go don't go looking for the OnlyFans yet. It's It'll, not, not quite ready. You don't ready. go looking for it. It finds you. <laughs> I've got. Uh, I'm preparing for naked Gargant battle time reviews. That's 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 the first one I kick I'm off. I'm looking on forward OnlyFans. to bringing back the the Age of Sigmar beard calendar. I think we could bring that back. I remember that from last year. That was that was a good one. Yeah, but I reckon we could. Yeah, there's probably a whole bunch of things, and uh, I'm sure people are going to mind. But start looking for the OnlyFans, and maybe it'll be a joke, and then it might turn out to something real. Who knows? Uh, but let's move away from OnlyFans. I want to know how you got into Age of Sigma and why you chose the Ogres above all else, because you would have played as uh, as Beast Claw before the merger. Yeah, yeah. So they were. At least when I jumped in, I jumped in, speaking of ups and downs, I jumped into the Beast Claw Raiders at precisely the worst time possible. Uh, that would be 2017, right after the list that people were playing to do well with um, like a whole bunch of Thunder Tusks and stuff. Like right after that got nerfed, jumped into Beast Claw, and then they were the worst army in the game for like three years, and now this book came out. And so that's the the history there. I got into it. My roommate at the time, Andrew Yells, um, was a big chess player when we were both finishing our degrees in Milwaukee. Um, he was a big chess player, and I was a big competitive magic grinder. And so we brought in pretty much our two different competitive philosophies to the game. 
uh, and half of Magic's competitive philosophies are honestly stolen from chess, and the other half are stolen from poker, like you know, tempo and the idea of card advantage and who's the beatdown and board control and using time or life as a resource and thinking about very you know variance and statistical chances of stuff happening and so we were really plus we had both played a whole bunch of rpgs tabletop and video game and otherwise and so we we're just used to like learning rule systems and then trying to min max them but not necessarily to like ruin the fun right for everyone it's like that's the interesting part in my opinion is like figuring out all the stuff you can do but then you don't have to like you don't have to go through with it. And if you do, that's fine. It's a social game. And we quickly learned that in Age of Sigmar. Where, you know, if the whole game was just tabletop simulator, like people would have a much different approach to building armies and playing the game. But it it really is kind of a just a social experience over the table. And so we we tried to have it both ways. You know how in a and d group, you have, um, largely speaking, in stereotypes, you have like the Munchkin Min Maxer guy, and then like, you know, the super role player person. Yeah. Well, there's no rule against going omega hard on role playing, but then also just having a really powerful character. And so you try to, you know, you try to get your cake and eat it too. This and is really you, deep, if, by the way. Normally, people just say, "Yeah, I walk into Games Workshop and I'd see these <laughs> models, and they're so amazing." But you have you have just completely, and this is again why you want to go and subscribe to your channel. Is here we are talking about magic and chess and some real deep thinking right now. But please continue. Yeah, and while I was saying, so in keeping with the theme of wanting cake and eating it too, ogres seemed like a good choice. And what I liked about them approaching the game without having known anything else about it, uh. A few of my friends in high school played Warhammer Fantasy, kinda, but I never found it to like. I the artwork was really cool, and when it came to the game, I'm like, nah, I'm just not interested. And so, not knowing too much about anything about AOS coming into it, I'm looking at this, all the armies, and I'm looking at ogres, and I'm like, usually ogres are like the elite. You know, these guys are huge. One of them can kill four people. Like being huge is sweet. But then in Age of Sigmar, everything seems to be over the top. And so not only is this an elite, you know, huge uh, ogre army, but they're all mounted on big thing. And so it's double huge. And uh, that struck my fancy. And the fact that all the models, I didn't have to paint clouds of 30, 60, 120, 160 guys. Didn't want to do that. Didn't want to fiddle with moving them all over the battlefield. Like I'm able to do that, but when I'm playing, I get this, I have this strange thing where maybe it's not strange, but it is, it might be for me, but like, I don't want to waste my opponent's time. I don't want to be, uh, like not fun to play against in and outside the game. You can't really address it, but this is kind of a drag sort of thing. And I don't want to like take an hour on my turn and then my opponent takes 20 minutes on his turn. And then I take an hour on my turn and my opponent takes 20, you know, I don't want to hog the total amount of time you know things are taking like you're you're a very conscious lover you're a very like considerate lover i'm a considerate charger yeah in uh in age of sigmar so anyway that was cool and i'm like okay well i'm gonna learn to paint because i've never painted a miniatures army before and it seems like beast claw have a lot of different material types there's leather there's clothes there's skin there's fur metal a bunch of bones tusks and stuff it seems like 
all of the different material types are here for me to better like learn how to paint. And so those were the main two, the main two reasons I think that I that I went towards Beast Claw Raiders. So if I'm distilling what I'm hearing for anyone who might be new listening to this thinking, why do I play the Ogres? Um, based off your experience, so I'm hearing it's a low model count army. Uh, you love the combination of the aesthetics. Um, the fact that it's a, uh, you've got these big monsters allows you to um, play faster or, or play with more purpose as opposed to moving these big clouds around. But I love your story just in regards to how you got into this army, what drew you into it. I'm sure we can all agree that we're all looking at this at a different level. And you're right, if we did play Tabletop Simulator or some type of digital version of this only, uh, I can assure you I probably wouldn't have stuck with some of my armies for as long as I've done because of that sheer investment of time and money. So I think there's probably a lot of people here who have stuck through this. On a, it's it's like stock the stock market, right? It, it rises, it falls. You you never lose until you actually cash right, out. Yeah. So you hold on to those ogres or you hold on to that legions of Nagash, hoping they get good one day. They will be back one day. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Oh, yeah, in some form. Um, if everyone played TTS, there'd be a lot more Marauders the day after a certain change, you know? So it's probably better this way, to be honest. It is, and 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 that's the that's the interesting thing. I, I don't want to go too deep into Magic: The Gathering, but that's certainly one of the the considerations when we think about the meta. We think about how you know you build a deck versus how you build a Warhammer army. Uh, I'm sure that's probably a big change that you've noticed. Is that when you're in Magic, you've got no investment in the card. Clearly, you've purchased it, but you can swap out cards from your deck so easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go pick up a new, a new card so easily. But for us, it's about building, it's about acquiring, it's about painting, it's about scratching those those mold lines. Um, and there's a lot of investment. And then as soon as like uh, something doesn't go well, we we hold on a little bit longer and go, nah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna persist with this. It's my favorite model. It's my favorite. I put so much time and love into this. I'm not gonna swap it out of my deck, even though I know that it's hot garbage. Yeah, and as Vince says, 99% um, truly of what we do in this hobby is not play the game. It's painting, it's talking about it, it's building lists, it's coming up with stories for your guys, it's assembling stuff, it's browsing content, you know, it's arguing with somebody about the lore, you know, it's actually playing the game is probably straight up 1% of what most people do. And for them, you know, you chose an army, and oh, okay, it got nerfed. All right, this year I'm a I'm a three and two army if I get lucky. Oh, I got a new book. Cool, I'm a four and one now. You know, and that's okay. It's just and like that's okay. as the years go by, that's fine because events are for the most part an excuse to play five games in a row. To people who give a shit about the game. So, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Talk to me about the ogres. Let's let's talk about this book because it used to be Beast Claw Raiders. It used to well, Gutbusters had a sub allegiance. They never they never had a book. So so for you for you you gained half an army. You gained the Gutbusters side in addition to what you used to have under the Beast Claw Raiders book. For the for the ogre type players, you've now gained essentially a whole bunch of goodness between both. And maybe for someone who's entering for the first time, they're just picking up these ogres and they're looking at potentially two different aesthetics. They are looking at an army of just ogres. What, what are the strengths that they can tap into 
when they're list building. And I know we've got two examples of your list that we're going to go through, and you're going to talk about the rules for me a little bit mm-hmm. more. But at a very high level, what draws you to an ogre army compared to the other armies in Age of Sigma? Is it just that it's usually a, a lower model count? Uh, so, I mean, it can be, and it almost always is. But the uh, from a from a list from a list design and faction, like looking at your battle tome, I consider there's a few different types of battle tomes, and this will be quick. But so here's Cities of Sigmar. That is a style of battle tome where it's very much about two card combos. Like you got here's a unit of dwarves, here's a dwarven hero. The unit of dwarves are good. Put the hero there. They're great. Okay, just put it in an army, right? And then there's the Sylvaneth style, or sorry, definitely not, uh, the Seraphon style of Battletome, where it's more a choose-your-own-adventure kind of railroad, where at T equals zero, you're like, I like Saurus Warriors. That's what I want to play. Okay, well, then you can, for every choice that you make when you're building an army, you're sort of reinforcing, oh, yeah, I definitely do want Saurus Warriors. Time to choose a sub-faction. Okay, I choose the Saurus Warriors one. Okay, here's a battalion. I choose the Saurus Warriors battalion and so on and so forth, until you get to an army and then it's mostly Saurus Warriors and they've been juiced up by all those choices to be like super good. But unless you go for all of those choices, they're kind of lukewarm. Whereas in cities, you can just kind of play two things and they're really good and your army is just a bunch of different two things. And in Seraphon, it's much more thematic. And so um, Beast Claw Raiders, or sorry, um, Ogre Maw Tribes is a little more on the Seraphon side of things. You're not necessarily just like picking and choosing a grab bag of units and then putting a hero next to it and now they're great and just sort of tossing it into an army. You're considering one of three options sort of like war clans thematically where, you know, you're building a Gutbusters army, you're building a mixed army, or you're building a Beast Claw army. And a lot of your choices tend to push you in one of those three different directions. As far as the strengths of the battle tome when it comes to you know, actually doing things on the table, I would say it is three things, and it is speed, objectives, and drops. Those are your three main pillars of strength in the Maw Tribe's book in its entirety. Um, Not just your Stonehorn, but mostly your Stonehorn. You're very fast. Your average guys are just straight eight-inch move. Even the quote-unquote slow, everybody... I've heard a lot of complaints about the slowness of gluttons. They're base eight, you know, because they're always hungry. That's good for a battle line, you know. It's um, excellent. A lot That's of battle excellent. line is fours. A lot of battle line is fives, and some elves and stuff are six. It's rare to just get flat eights pretty much across the board. And suddenly we're good at objectives. We'll get to this and when we talk about all of our allegiance abilities, but this has been flipped entirely on its head. Beast Claw Raiders before the Mod Tribes book. Um you just couldn't play to the objective game. You know, you would send 600 points after an objective and kill almost everyone, and they have four guys left, and it's their point still. So now uh, it is the complete opposite. I consider objective play one of the greatest strengths of this army. I think it's one of the strongest armies out there for objective play and scoring points and capturing points. And the third is drops. You're pretty low drops. You can be very low drops. And that's of a differing importance depending on what type of army you're in. But 
mostly you can some people can afford not to care about drops or even go the other direction with it because their options are so amazing but most armies don't have infinite options like you know skaven or cities or probably seraphon you know like those armies don't necessarily care if they get out dropped because they have so many arrows in the quiver that it's fine they got a plan for it but for the most part um armies really really should care about drops a lot and being able to dictate who has what opportunity at the first uh, double turn or especially getting the first opportunity of a double turn and then choosing not to take it because what you really want is that turn three double turn that you're setting yourself up for, which is sort of like the points double turn, whereas turn two is like the damage double turn. I will and add one more, and that is they are easy to paint. Uh, and when I say easy to paint, I know we're talking about rules, rule strength and things. Mm -hmm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm being sneaky here. Is that um, if I was getting into ogres and I'm thinking about potentially painting my first army, there is a lot, uh, there are larger models, which means that uh, getting into those fine details, um, they're a bit more forgiving as well. And they're the type of army that if you do mess up, you could always put a bit of you know blood splatter you know, you can uh, mess up the swords. You can do the cool stuff um, to to avoid to avoid some of those painting um, issues that you might have as well. So uh, I think they are quite forgiving as well. Much easier eyes to paint, much easier to details to paint. Not too technical compared to some of the other armies that are smaller, finer, have very fine details. Not to say that they're not a painting challenge and you can't do an amazing uh, ogres type army but they are forgiving uh, as well. So a good army to start with. Yeah, I'll say that a lot of people are scared off maybe by the sheer amount of flesh in an army, especially a more gutbusters army, but don't be. You got to rip the Band-Aid off. You're going to have to learn how to paint skin eventually. You might as well do it on models that are larger and tend to be a messier race. And also it is paint. So if you mess up, paint over it. Easy. And we've got contrast paint now as well, which is, mm -hmm. has helped significantly as well. I know for someone maybe 12 months, 18 months ago, something like Daughters of Cain, something like this, the ogres would have a lot of flesh, would be intimidating. Uh, but now you can do that quite easily with contrast. And you can do cool stuff like tattoos. I think there's very few armies out there that actually tap into the tattoo aesthetic. And that tribal tattoos are, are very, very cool and very fun and very unique. And you can get some very creative designs. Um on the backs of those tattoos as well, or the arms or whatever you want, right? Like Hawaiian tattoos, Maori tattoos, Viking tattoos, you name it. The aesthetic is wide open mm -hmm. if you want to go into that. Yeah, quite right. I'm noticing in chat they're talking about um, it is also, it plays rather simply or it doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't have tons of bells and whistles um, mechanics wise. So you're not, you know, you're not teleporting once a turn and counting up all your depravity and summoning stuff and figuring out how many spell casts you're doing because that affects this thing affects you have a lot you're kind of clearing away all of that and just playing on like pure meat and potatoes measurements thinking ahead planning what happens if a double turn happens or not counting victory points and playing tempo game when you need to and playing capture and hold when you need to and figuring out the the flow of the battlefield. So it's sort of like playing limited. If if yeah, we have any if we have any magic players in chat, uh, ogres are like limited where your 
your solid fundamentals are what will carry you to victory much more than say like playing a combo deck in, in yeah. um, constructed or something like that and, and and before we get into the rules like I, i'm reflecting on what you say and i think about my gits army another destruction army and that is the, the complete opposite right like not only is it f small models very fine details but also it is more of the combination deck you know if i think about my grots i think about having a whole bunch of you know, small bodies i've got to have them wholly within 12 uh in the hero phase so that my uh my sports platter fanatics can give them plus one to hit but then i've also got my sneaky snufflers they're going to be uh sacrificed at the start of the movement phase within 12 inches to do this then the loon boss within 12 has to activate the like there's so many combinations that i'm trying to prepare then i'm thinking the placement of the bad moon i'm thinking about the hand of gork it's like a hundred things i'm thinking about and I'm probably not focused on the game as much as uh, potentially an Ogres player. So I think that cl nice, clean uh, approach to the game, focusing on what's happening in the moment, uh, is a lot easier in an Ogres army. Not to say it can't be complicated, not to say that it's a simple army, but it allows you to truly focus on what is happening in the moment, which is a, a great a great thing to be doing, especially if you're a newer player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Some people are asking about Noblars as well. <laughs> what do I think? What do I All think right. of Noblars? Um, sure. No, I'll bring up the rules and, and you talk talk about Noblars while sure, we're sure. at. I'll, I'll even make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to touch on a little bit of everything, even though I have. Um, you know, you, you can only choose two lists, right? But um, with a list is also inherently what you didn't pick, and I think that's sometimes even more important than what you did pick. And the options you had available. So, all right, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a bunch of rules. So these are we, we're now gonna work off the allegiance abilities, and mm -hmm. I'd love just your perception of what this means because I can pick up this book and I, I'm and I'm like, right, trampling charge does X, but I guess for me, I don't understand what's the benefit. You know, when I combine it with the different units. How easy it is it to set up as a combination? Like, you know, that that tabletop experience is probably lacking for someone who picks up this battle tone for the first time. So I'd love you, I'm gonna read out a couple of the rules and I'd love your insights on them. So first off, you've got trampling charge. So after an ogre or a rhinox unit has made the charge, you pick one enemy unit within one inch of the unit and roll the dice equal to the number of the unmodified charge roll for that charge move. Add to if it's an ogre unit, uh, basically for every six you do a mortal wound cool okay so i'm charging in i'm doing a mortal wound on a six is that all is that, is that all it means uh so yes and no for to parse through any of the math just for napkin math if you're looking for sixes expect about a d3 mortal wounds uh you know zero to three if you're looking for fours because you get that plus two bonus consider it something like a d6 it's not exactly but it, it's good for, you know, just looking at the table like, okay, I'm probably going to do this much, probably going to do that much. The fact that everybody gets this is huge. This, this is probably, um, well, not even probably, it's our second most impactful Allegiance ability next to the ability to capture in the game of Age of Sigmar. So notice that Ogre units of size 8 or more get to add that very important plus 2 to the roll. You're looking to always find ways of having this work on four ups because I feel that really turns it into a much more of a useful ability instead of like a salt shaker of maybe something happening. So you look at units like the fact that iron guts are exactly eight if it's two, you know, if it's 
if it's two fours of it or you know looking at ogre gluttons being six so you take an extra unit you really kind of want always want to get that those four ups whether it be using stone horns or larger units of ogres the fact that you're doing damage out of sequence is really important as well tactically very often so for instance this is how i would deal with okay last year everyone everyone's up in arms about something every year right rules wise and so last year it was the um uh what did, what did they call it what was the name for it are we uh, talking about the activation the wars do you remember yeah, those yeah yeah they always fight last always fight first yeah you're fight. fighting last because of the locust or you know such and such fire slayer unit is always fighting first or you got you know the silver chalice on a dragon even longer ago and everyone's all or the uh, bloodthirster you know that that battalion that made um corn good for a while you know how, do you, deal, how do you deal with that well this is how you deal with that you in the charge phase you just charge and you do a great deal of damage to stuff sometimes you charge multiple things into one one unit this charts monsters before they get to fight which is just huge because charted monsters are so much weaker than full strength ones this kind of makes up for glutton's lack of rend in a manner because even your unit that oh man this guy, these guys don't have ren like they suck but baked in they have these mortal wounds that just happen which is really useful and then also because charging is so important that's a central strategy in your whole game plan and i know this sounds basic but actually you need to really play like that you know always be charging abc that's what you do with yeah, this is a Glen Gary Glen Ross, the Ogre edition. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, like, where where is the Haywo bra bracelet? I, I would buy the the always be charging bracelet for for yeah. um, missed opportunity against workshop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, coffee is for chargers, and you gotta you gotta charge. So, because charging is so important, very often I'll have a unit trapped in a previous combat, and so in the charge phase, I'm going to charge that with two or three other guys to wipe that enemy unit out still in the charge phase so that the one that used to be trapped can now roll a charge roll and charge somewhere else and still do it. And so you're, you can kind of play pinball and unstuck some sticked units. So it's an interesting point. I just, I just want to pause on that particular point there because that might be missed. Um, for most people, when you see a rule like this, you just immediately think that those these mortal wounds happen at the end of the charge phase. But what you're saying, and, and you know, if you if you read the words as as written, it says that it happens after the charge has been moved, or you've made the charge move. So you're right, hundred percent. So you can unlock those models by by charging, because sometimes you might charge a stone horn into battle. There's two to three models still left. How do I get this out and still unlock that that um, that stone horn? Well, guess what? You might have a, a, a supporting unit of ogres, or you might have um some some beast riders or something around that could help unlock that and then get that stone horn to charge so really good call out because you might miss that if you are just we, we read what we think we read not always what is written that's a good yeah. point and then the plus two to bring that down to a uh, down to a four plus uh if you've got eight, eight or more models um is definitely rewarding for those larger builds of ogres something that you don't see as often people like to kind of msu sometimes yeah and um this also means that Mornfang are kind of like the forgotten unit, at least for trampling charge, because having a unit of eight Mornfang is so restrictively like expensive 
and um, it takes up so much room on the table that it's just not feasible to really run units of Morden Fang quite that gigantically. But they have rules on their war scroll that totally make up for it, and they still slap. So, I mean, it's fine. Uh, anything more, else? About yeah, the... one more thing with the trampling charge. Sometimes yeah. it can be a downside because you have to play it correctly. So you're doing the mortal wounds right after that particular unit charged. So be uh, be aware of which unit is within range of what and which unit is more likely to succeed on a, a particular charge roll. So you have two units that want to charge the same enemy. Well, if you charge one of them, let's say you charge with your, um, I don't know, lead belchers, say. So you, you first you charge with your gluttons who have reroll charge on their war scroll because of a banner. And they make it in and do a bunch of mortal wounds. Well, the, a clever opponent can remove casualties that were closest to the unit of lead belchers. And so now their charge is harder. And lead belchers can't reroll charges. And so sometimes you have to think ahead, like, okay, I'm going to charge in and do some damage, but then what's the consequences of that damage? And so like a more correct play might have been to charge with the lead belchers first and then choose the gluttons afterwards because if, a, if your opponent is clever and they remove stuff, you still have to reroll banner on them or something. So there's, it can be bad sometimes. It doesn't, it's not always like a great thing, but it's just something to be aware of. It's always one of the risks as well. I know when you have a unit that can shoot uh, and then charge, you know, uh, when I run Terrorgeist, for example, it's got like a breath attack that's like nine or 10 inches. And normally I'm, I'm you know, if I'm deep striking or I'm, I'm outside, you know, by, by using that shooting attack, you can get that one, two, three models removed from closest to the charge, which then makes it harder for you. And sometimes it's that one inch or two inches that you might fail on that makes the difference between a successful or an unsuccessful. And if it's not a hero, um, you know, either using a command point or, you know, not having the ability to re-roll. So again, a really good point about thinking ahead, thinking about likelihoods, and maybe sometimes if the model does shoot and it can charge, maybe foregoing the shooting attack in order to guarantee the charge. Yeah, I've, Unless I've you shoot something up over it. Yeah, I've I've definitely done that with units of Mornfang, and there were one single pistol shot that can do three damage if you like win the lottery. Like sometimes I have I think I'm thinking of like two particularly, where I chose not to shoot on purpose because they would have removed two models and it would have been an extra, I would have needed a 10-inch charge instead of a 9-inch charge. And I'm like, no, I need to get my guys closer to that objective. So anyway. No, it, it's it's a good call-out. It's a very good call-out because sometimes it, it sounds crazy. You're like, why would I not shoot it? It's It could be three damage. Yeah. But actually, that could be the, the difference between using a command point or failing a charge and then your whole strategy kind of starts crumbling because you, you took a chance that you probably shouldn't yeah, have. Yeah, I mean, yo, uh, I will admit before anyone that rolling a big charge and piling in and trying to do a bunch of damage to that juicy 30-man blob that they have in the center of the table, boy, would that be fun. But if it's Hearthguard, it's probably just a bad decision. And so, you know, I, I put in one of my early um, introduction AOS videos, dealing damage is fun, but points win games. And when these two butt heads, you should probably choose points. Yeah. Well said, well said. Sometimes, unfortunately, the bloodlust does take over. Hey, if it's a more casual game, I mean, go nuts, like rolling dice, doing damage, that's fun. What's wrong with that? The right? next rule we 
The next rule we've got is Grasp of the Everwinter. So at the start of your hero phase, roll one dice for each enemy unit within three inches of a Beast Claw Radar keyworded unit. If that roll is equal to or less than the number of the current of the current battle round, the unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. So this only affects half the army. Yeah. Um, similar to how Trampling Charge doesn't work for say, Icefall Yetis, because they don't have the Ogre keyword. Uh, Grasp of the Everwinter doesn't work for, you know, all the Gutbuster stuff, and um, as well as uh, Fire Wizard, I suppose, because he has, like, sort of all the worst keywords. But um, this is, it's not too big of a deal. If I were a Gutbuster player, um, no sweat off my back. This isn't, this is really somewhat of a minor ability. It um, The fact that you have to roll under the battle round means that in the first two like very crucial turns of the game, it's just probably not going to happen. Um, even turn three, I mean, you're looking for one to three, it's a 50-50 it's a even. And it only works if the combat is still happening from whatever last turn it was after it rolls back around to the hero phase. So if you're still locked in combat with units, I find that to be somewhat rare. For the most part, usually your guys get exploded if their hammers hit them, and you explode the other guys if you get the charge. Um, the one exception to that was Ethereal Frostlord, who just got to pitch a tent and camp out in the woods, uh, looking at the sunset and roasting marshmallows while people completely ineffectually attempted to attack him for the whole game. Um, and I, I really got to use Grasp of the Everwinter very nicely, and um, as well as Metal Cruncher, but... That stuff's gone for now. The tactical advice for Grasp of the Everwinter, I would just say to Beast Claw players, is try not to forget about this ability. Because it's easy to forget about because it like kind of never happens and you know the role's unlikely and blah blah blah. But you know, you don't have much going on in the hero phase, so you tend to just skim past it and think about where you're gonna move. You know, try to remember it, I guess. It's nice for unseating stuck monsters. It's just one extra little thing that can unstick you before the charge phase, which is sort of nice. So turn one, turn two, statistically, it's unlikely. A bit of math's hammer coming in. It's probably something you can't guarantee. Turn three, turn four is most likely. So yeah, you probably want to make sure. Yeah, yes. But I think by, by that stage as well, you're 100% right, is by turn one, turn two, I haven't been rolling these dice. So turn three, turn four, when it's the heat of the battle, I'm on a time restriction, potentially at a tournament or my local game store. This might be a rule I skip skip across. So again, maybe let's get that second Haywoe bracelet. So we have always be charging. We now have don't forget your uh, your mate your Everwinter. Um, yeah, don't don't, <laughs> don't forget your rules, you however minor they are. <laughs> I think we, I think, I think we need to come up with a better name with that. But either way, like that, that is potentially an additional D three uh, damage you could doing uh, for against a, a model within three inches of that beast claw radar. However, it's something that you wouldn't build a strategy around, nor would you be looking to guarantee something. It's yeah. just, it's too fickle, and probably by the time that you need it, um, it's not going to, it's not going to change the game. It might be, it might be nice. It might unlock your models in turn three, turn four, and five, but. It's something that's not going to swing the game. Yeah, I got a name for the bracelet. Don't let go of the grasp. Keep it in your mind. There we go. 
All right, all right. Merch store will be up on Haywo's Twitch's channel straight after this. So we've got two, we've got two bracelets so far. Let's keep it going. We've got the other side, right? Because that's the Beast Claw Raider side. We've now got the Ogre side. So with Make It Right or Make, so Might Makes Right. Jeez, that's a bit mm -hmm. of. Uh, when determining control of an objective, each Ogre keyword uh, counts for two models instead of one, and each Ogre monster counts for 10 instead of one so this is probably what you were talking about earlier in the in the old book there was no love for objective play now the game has changed yeah this is this truly changes the game for for ogres it like 75 percent you know 70 percent 65 percent changes the game for beast claw it 100 percent changes the game um Having your 12 gluttons count as 24 is big. But having your Stonehorn count as 10 instead of 1 is just insane. The fact that you can play with a bunch of 14-inch move hungry monsters that have a command ability that we'll talk about later that can make sure it's always 14 if you really want, or 12 and just zoom to some objective with two of them, and now there are 20 models there, and you steal the point and win the game. It is so frequent. It's very common. Um, I would almost say that a... I can't just pull a number out because it would be very anecdotal, but a meaningful percentage of my tournament victories happen because I am either retreating or moving or just charging two stone horns onto some objective counting as 20 straight away stealing it from 16 guys and winning the whole game that that maneuver is giant and might makes right allows that to happen and one consideration as well is the size of potentially your bases too so with with a stone horn i don't know the exact base size i'm assuming it's like 120 by yeah, 90 a, or something yeah, it's a 120 oval yeah that's quite a large space as well. So if you think about putting that on an objective, you can deny an opponent getting, in most cases, probably 20-odd models, unless they're probably 25s and, and things like that. So not only will it count as 20 models, which is just absolutely brilliant for you to play the objective, and you don't have to run big hordes of noblars if you don't want to, uh, just to try to win a game, but also you can then deny your opponent. Um, and for something like the Lumineth right now, who can kind of push you back a little bit, cool, I still count for 20 models. So that's um, that's pretty sexy. Yeah, and it's some of the best surface area to victory points ratio in the game where you charge some very well-bubble-wrapped point and then pile in 1.75 inches in a little swivel and you get a shaving of a Beast Claw model right over the inside the objective zone. Oh, 10. Like there's two millimeters of the base in there, 10 models. Like that kind of stuff is big as well. Sorry, I should clarify. I said I said twenty. It should be ten. Ogre monsters. Yeah, I was 10. I was talking about like uh, running two of them over there to be twenty and stuff. So you yeah. can you can double and triple up. But yeah, well, even more than I was I was here. I, I heard a number. That's what that's why I said, guys. You gotta listen right. to the, listen to the rules as written. You, we hear what we want to hear. But no, it's it's ten for the ogre monsters. Uh, but there are some scenarios as you know in that this is kind of shared around the the artifact of power as well. That's an interesting little design. Helps you play the objective as well as the combat game. 
Uh, ravenous Brutes, uh, if an ogre unit uh, is more than three inches from an enemy unit, it is hungry. Uh, if the ogre unit is within three of an enemy unit, uh, it is eating. So we've got eating or hungry. We've got two different things. Uh, add two to the movement characteristic if it is hungry. Add two to the bravery characteristic if it is eating. Okay, so it's not an option for me. It's just one or the other, depending on if my model's within three or out of three. Yeah, this is just a wonderfully designed little rule. I, I appreciate it. It's one or the other. It's simple. It makes sense. Um, here the guy is hungry. Here the guy is eating. You understand why that is. And plus two move, just about army-wide. Um, whenever you really care about the movement characteristic, for the most part, I mean, that's just that's exactly what any ogre player would want. I mean, six inches on gluttons, that's cool. How about eight? You know, 12 inches on a stonehorn, how about 14? And if they're already in combat, you know, the bravery doesn't do anything for Beast Claw, but that doesn't matter. It's um, it's reasonably useful for gluttons. Everybody, you know, there's a tendency in this game to be like, bravery doesn't matter at all. And you're not, like, entirely wrong for thinking that, but it is a bit sweeping. Um, there are a few more, especially with techless and stuff coming out, things that uh, really punish you for having bad braveries. And I know that, you know... Any really important battle shock in any particular game is probably just not going to be rolled because of command points. But I'm not going to turn away from plus two bravery. Hey, it's it's not bad, especially on your gluttons and stuff. And that's probably one of the biggest risks of the ogre player, right? Is um, is running away because your your generic ogre, um, whether it's an iron iron gut or whatever it might be. You've got a lot of wounds within each model. So every model that runs away at the end of Bravery uh, in Battleshock is worth a lot. So by having that plus two, that could be the difference of either, again, using a command point or not using a command point. It could be the difference of, of one running away or three running away. And if you think about three things running away, that could be up to 12 wounds running away um, off that one roll. So being able to re reduce that, that's, that's quite significant let alone anyone who's got a bravery-based attack, or again, you've just made it a whole lot harder to do wounds or mortal wounds off a bravery characteristic. So Yeah, and I like it's it. add to the bravery characteristic, like you said. So speaking of minutia of rules, it's add two to the bravery characteristic, not add two to the role. And that's yeah. important as well, because adding it to the bravery characteristic is almost always better. So, 100%. Um, and, you know, ogres are, like, what are gluttons? 40 points apiece, unless you're getting a massive regiment. If you pass a bravery instead of fail it, every time you do that, you're sort of saving yourself 40 or 80 points throughout the whole course of the game. It could be big. Andrew Yells has told you to do his list, yo. Do my he list, said yo. <laughs> he said bro. Um yeah, Everwinter Prayers. So you've also got a series of prayers. So each beast called Raider's Priest um, uh, has one Everwinter Prayer uh, from the um, manifestation of the Eternal Snowstorm Table. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff there. Um, it's just talking about priest rules, really. It's They work like priests in the game. You know, if you know how priests work, that's how they work. Shall so I, priests can't be on... Priests can't be unbind, by the way, so it's mm -hmm. not like a you know, it's not like not like the average spell casting where I cast a spell, you attempt to unbind it. Priests are different. It's just yeah. a, a flat out roll, and it either happens or it doesn't happen. No opponent interaction. 
Uh, do you want me to? Do you want me to tell you why all the prayers are terrible, or do you just want to move on? <laughs> Should right. we even bother? Or uh, look, look. If, if if you want to do a Haywo uh, rant and get me all the likes, I'm, I'm up for it. But if you just want to share, like, if it means anything or what your thoughts are, um, again, always appreciated. All right. So elevator pitch. Everwinter prayers. The priest in your army, you have one priest model, and it's the Huskard on Thundertusk, who is a, oh, you know what? They changed the points on him. He used to be, he used to be over 300 points, but now he's just, he's flat three. So you have the only priest in your army, 300 point monster, who does approximately zero damage in melee combat. So he's mainly like an artillery platform priest thing that has charge damage and counts for 10. Uh, the prayers are not designed in a way that takes into account they're on a 300-point monster, I'll say. Um, you have Pulverizing Hailstorm. This prayer is answered on a 4-up, so it's a coin flip. But when it succeeds, you do another coin flip, and on a 3-up, it does a D3 mortal wounds to a unit. Uh, if there are two units like really close together, sometimes you can try to hit two of them. But um, yeah, I'm not interested in flipping two coins to see if I can do a D3. That's not very exciting to me. Uh, Keening Gale is another coin flip. And uh, pick one monster or Mornfang, and you can add three to its move characteristic. Adding three to a move characteristic is good. Like, okay. You know, am I going to take a priest to flip a coin to see if that happens? No. So, okay. And uh, call the blizzard. Uh, priest uh, prayers answered on a four up. Another coin flip. Uh, you pick one friendly unit of icefall yidis, which um, you're not playing. But if you were, you could return one slain one to a unit. They come in units of three or more. They have a six up save. They die to every two wounds. Two wounds each. Three wounds each. They're big. Oh, they're bees. But um, that was a pretty tame. This is this is a pretty tame rant, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't. Uh, I don't feel really strongly about it. This isn't a rant. I'm just uh, trying to, you know, elevator pitch. Prayers, big bad. Prayers are big All bad. Right. You don't want. <laughs> so the summary here is: don't build a strategy around the prayers. It's not like you're going to take a. You're not. You're not going to be the hollow heart of uh, ogres and buy, uh, buy a whole bunch of priests to be able to out priest your opponents. No, if you uh, find yourself. If you find yourself playing a Thunder Tusk for some reason, and there's like a legitimate, like maybe a legitimate reason to do so, the prayers are like something you happen to put on its war scroll, but are still like the third place thing you would use. Sorry, yeah, yeah, these are four wounds each. Pardon me, it's different. So you are bringing four four wounds back into the unit. Okay. Well, long story short, prayers. Eh, don't don't build around it. If you happen to have one, awesome. If not move along mm -hmm. don't build around it it's not going to be a crazy synergy the last thing and we'll, we won't go deep into this because we'll actually focus on um parts of it is the more tribes so once you've got your umbrella so you've taken your allegiance of the ogre more tribes you then can take these sub allegiance you've got meat fist blood gullet underguts boulder head th uh, thunder bellies and winter bite uh three for each side so three mm -hmm. three four for for the dead but uh gut busters three for the beast claw raiders um 
maybe high level because we won't get into the detail yeah, because yeah. You're, we're going to go through some of your list. Are all six of them good? No. Are there ones that lean better competitively or like what's what's some just general high level stuff about the six? Okay, so I feel like there's really two directions you can be pulled and the directions don't have to be opposed. But there are two things people tend to care about and that's competitiveness and fun. You don't have to be at odds. They're often not, but those are the two directions you tend to have a person caring about something. So um, Meat Fist Maw Tribe is not competitive and not fun. It's terrible. It does nothing. It uh, attempts to give you some glutton powers, but if you want to build a strategy around gluttons, then Blood Gullet Maw Tribe is superior to Meat Fist in every way. So it's it's sort of like Gut Butchers only has two, because Meat Fist is not a is not a serious option in any capacity. In the lore, it's the most powerful tribe that defeated Boulderhead. Not salty, by the way. Is this is this like Galmaraz and the one that killed Behemoth? That's like, oh, just the Celestin Prime comes yeah. down and kill, oh, kills kills the the fa the father of Gargans. Uh, yet you look at the War Scroll of the Prime, and he is eh, not killing uh, five grots. Yeah, the the father um, of all behemoths. Who, if you looked at him in front of you, you could not see his head and his feet at the same time because he is so huge. Uh, apparently, he has three wounds. I didn't know that, but thanks. With the so, story so, writers, so now I know. So, Meat Fist, eh. Yeah, Meat Fist, uh, a big L. You got to hold it. Or you can take Blood Gullet, which is fun. Blood Gullet is a uh, big fun size. If you want to do what a lot of this book seems to think you want to do, and it's not wrong, which is I want to play big meat blobs of ogre sumo wrestlers who also power lift. And I want to pull this, the slot machine to see what buff randomly lands on them to make them even huger and then smash something that's blood gullet. This is for you. Whether it be iron guts or gluttons or whatever. Um, it's helping you pull the slot machine more on your phone game of buffs that your wizards cast to land on big men to make them hit bigger. And it's super fun. Splatter Cleaver is a hilarious artifact that is both flavorful and pretty good. It hits that perfect halfway point between... Because it could be better, but sometimes the best thing is just kind of a number, and there's no, like fun lore thing attached to it. It's just like, well, you got to choose the number and numbers can sometimes be boring. Splatter Cleaver is like the perfect Venn diagram of fun and good. In that, whenever you crit, uh, you heal a D3 mortal wounds in a giant AoE around you. So it's like you're hitting the person so hard that they explode into jibs that fly across the concert and some ogre just grabs the beer and drinks it. Like, it's it's hilarious. So that's Blood Gullet. Your wizards cast more spells. You can pile in easier. You have glutton bonuses. Big fun. Um, Underguts is the other Gutbuster one. And this is the one that if you want your guys to shoot, you take this one. It makes your lead belchers have a reasonable range characteristic instead of a sad ranged characteristic. They still don't do any damage in shooting but they get to make the rolls because it's at least 18 inches, and that's nice. 
You also have Thunderous Salvo, which doubles the shots of your giant cannons. And this used to be bad. Unequivocally. Some people championed it, but the, you know. However, the world has changed because there's no more ethereal on every single monster that you want to kill that is a hero in the entire game. Which means your sky cannons are able to do damage now, ever, against vampire lords on zombie dragons and terror geists and opponent stone horns and all sorts of hero monsters and stuff that you want to shoot. And so Thunderous Salvo with a tyrant with trophy rack as an artifact uh, is a quality, though very expensive, giant five, 600 point Lego to place inside of your army. Can I just clarify one point before we go any yeah. further? Uh, for anyone who's quite new to Age of Sigma or is just get, kind of getting into it, uh, what what Haywa was referring to here is Ethereal is still around, but we did have some artifacts, specifically the Ethereal Amulet, which was being taken on majority of heroes. So Vampire Lord on Zombie Dragon, uh, Ethereal uh, Frost Lords, Ethereal Mangler Squigs, Ethereal everything. So basically this was a very common artifact which limited the damage potential because our heroes were just taking it. Uh, under General's Handbook 2020, those those artifacts are no longer available. So if you do play against Nighthaunt, you do play against certain army, Ethereal does still exist. It's just that it's not as common as it used yeah, to be. It's just just in case just in case someone didn't get that and go and just just Yeah, you're not play you're not hundred percent free. <laughs> Nighthaunt still exists, you know, if you're shooting Bellacor or some random hero that happens to have ethereal like that exists in the game but when realm artifacts were around i could safely say that what would you say coach half of every army had a monster that was ethereal maybe yeah like like when i was doing the emerging meta series like i i would say one in every four one in every three armies was running ethereal amulet it was just way too yeah. good so um so it, it, very, very few armies, I think, uh, is it Loom Earth Realm Lords can still make yeah. uh, a model ethereal. Um, there's a couple of, I think maybe in Allegiance of Nagash, there might be an artifact that can make you ethereal. But I would imagine now that if you went to a tournament, unless you played Nighthaunt, you almost would never fight someone who's found a way to get ethereal. Or maybe maybe Lumineth, but otherwise it's pretty uncommon. Yeah, and there's a lot of like ignore Rend 1 effects in the game, but there are very few ignore Rend 2 effects. And so your big cannons are gonna, to the to a large degree, kind of ignore that. They're very random, you know. Um, they're, they're doing a d6 damage, so it's wheel and woe the whole time. But you're shooting a lot, and stuff doesn't straight ignore your end two anymore. So it's like it's like reasonable. Um, anyway, so that's that. So basically, basically, basically folks, uh, you have more consistency and more opportunity to do that damage now that ethereal is not as dominant as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Just close it out uh what the thunderbellies uh next up is boulderhead at least on, oh. as i'm scrolling down no how, how could i miss boulderhead uh probably because i'm going to be talking about it uh in all right well, let's, list, give it, so... let's give it let's give it let's give it because we will talk about that one uh talk to me about th thunderbellies okay thunderbellies is supposed to be your um mourn fang like when you're building your army and you're like oh i want to play sh i want to shoot dudes with my ogre cannons well, all right, Underguts is for you. Well, I want to crash Stonehorns in this stuff. All right, Boulderhead is for you. Well, I want to play a whole bunch of big, meaty, you know, prey hackers and, and Iron Fist Mornfang. Thunderbellies is for you. 
except it's not for you because it's real bad. Um, right, so not so so not meat fist, not not thunder bellies. Are yeah. they fun to play? Are they because I guess we've got competitive and we've got fun. Are they mm -hmm. fun to play with, or is it just better to put those models into? I don't know, winter bite. It's just way better to put those models into something else. Like the abilities you get don't really like translate to making them that much more interesting on the table. Like Mornfang are cool enough. You can, as long as the Mornfang are just sitting in a Euro bad, they're fun. And it doesn't really matter what your sub faction is. If you put it in Thunderbellies, you know, the only thing that you really get from it is run and charge if you happen to be wholly within 12 of a edge of the battlefield, which is very rare. And if you want to set it, set that up from earlier, you're kind of like spending movement to go in a weird place to do it. Um, and Rip and Tear is a decent buff that's attached to a strange requirement that has annoying rules minutia and very often like doesn't apply for, for certain reasons. Like we could get into it in a little tangent, but basically like, you know how a buffs are like, all right, I want to give these guys plus one to hit. So you spend a command point and give these guys plus one to hit. Well, rip and tear is like uh, you're talking to attack. You're talking to an attorney, and it's like I want to give these guys reroll wounds. Okay, spend your command point. All right, I did. All right, now let's see. Let's check to see if any of them are technically wounded. And if it's like one wound models, you can't technically be wounded. You're either dead or alive. So it's just like, oh nope, you can't do that. So that it's requires a bunch of jumping through hoops, and your Mornfang are just better used elsewhere as the support for something else that you're supporting. And Shatterstorm, uh, Shatterstone is like the worst uh, artifact in the whole game. All right, moving on. Winterbite. This one is good. Each sub-faction has two good sub-factions. I'm sorry, each uh, army, or whatever you would call it, technically it's the same army, has two good ones. So here's a quality. Um, this one is supposed to be your Yeti and Frost Saber themed sub-faction. And it's got abilities that care about Frost Sabers and Yetis and stuff. But nobody ever takes it for that. <laughs> they take it because you subtract one from hit rolls for attacks made with missile weapons that target friendly Winterbite units that are wholly within your territory. Because no. you don't want to get shot right away. And it's not that shooting is everywhere and in, is the best thing to do and you, know, you constantly get shot off or anything. That's not necessarily the case. But there's the best stuff and then the stuff that people are building to try to beat the best stuff and the stuff that people are trying to build to beat the best stuff is almost always shooting and you don't want to get caught in the crossfire you just want to drive monster trucks around the table with your head down and steal wins from people on turn four by retreating onto an objective and counting as 10. so at a very high level what i'm hearing is there's a lot of cool different builds using the tribes if I if I'm hearing if I'm a, a a dad bod, I keep calling them dad bod. They're officially gut busters, but we all know they're the dad bods. Yeah, um, the gut busters very much. You if you want to get the most out of your models, uh, blood gullet and underdogs, uh, they're probably the two stronger builds. If you want, to I love that you and... called them underdogs. It's a slip of the tongue. It's oh, under... underguts. <laughs> it's underguts, but they are the underdogs. That is true. That <laughs> to is... be brutally honest, my, my share screen over here is uh is on my tiny laptop screen while oh, okay. I'm like right in front of me as so i'm like i squint there a little bit but the uh, the underdog slash the under the guts um are your two gut buster builds and then if you're going down the beast claw raider side to the monsters and all that good stuff you're either going boulder head or winter bite they're your two potential oh, uh, builds yeah one correction there 
the uh, Winter Bite might as well be a Gutbuster sub-faction. If you're going Beast Claw Raiders, you just always choose Bowler Head no matter what, like top to bottom. Winter Bite uh, is what Gutbusters take to get minus one to hit and then ignore all the other crap. I'll be honest, I've never seen a Winter Bite build with the Beast Claw, but um, yeah, I have seen some Winter Bites on the table, so it's a really good it's, call it's out. It's possible to do. Like, you can play a bunch of Yetis. They're not, like, terrible. They have They have a really tricky gameplay, but they don't technically count as Ogres, so they don't get a lot of the Ogre rules. And um, they die very quickly. So it's, you're going in for that minus one to hit, really, in shooting. You're you're going for that, yeah. In Winterbite, you're you're going in for Ghosts of the Blizzard and Frostfang because it's fun. It's like seventy five percent fun, twenty five percent good. Because you your leader has this sword that on a five up every turn doubles in size until he's running around like in an anime or something, and his sword is just like twenty feet long. Because every turn on a five up, you add one of the damage inflicted by that weapon for the rest of the game, and so if you get stupendously lucky, you just have like guts running around like from, you know, berserk or something, and it's hilarious. One of the other things that you do get so there's there is a couple of other things. One is that you get monster uh, mount traits. So if you do run the beast core raider side and you've got your monsters, you can give your monsters a mount trait, and we'll talk a bit about about that when we get into your lists. Okay. Um, but one other, one other thing that you do get is this more pot. So the more pot gives you a whole bunch of uh, abilities, right? It's a terrain piece. You're going to be putting it down. Uh, when do you put it down? Do you put it down after the sides are determined yeah. before deployment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I guess really high level because it's not that complicated, the, the more pot. Uh, a couple of questions really is how useful is the more pot? Is the more pot useful for the Beast Chlorator side and the um, and the the the, the Gut buster side. Uh, I keep going referring to, I, I keep immediately going to say dad yeah. bod. Um, I know it's going to trigger somebody eventually in the comments, but do you, do you, is it useful for both sides of the fence? No. Would you build around no. it? Um, like what, what's that? What are your kind of thoughts around the, the more? Uh, you wouldn't build around it. I don't think. And it's not useful for both sides on the gut buster side. Um, you often play wizards and they are trying to roll natural sevens. And that sucks. So if you're standing next to the Great Maw Pot, you get plus one to cast. I mean, that's great, right? Except yeah. your game plan is always to start here and then move forward. So after that initial like turn one cast, you you have you, un, you know, unfortunately you have to move away from your thing that makes your casting good. Uh, except for like your one anvil that's just sitting there, you know. But then you have like this giant anvil plus a 140 point wizard that's just like chilling on an objective and in ogres specifically i don't know if you're really trying to do that unless you're trying to bait your opponent into you know going for it or whatever but uh then you have battle broth which is a it's a big old aoe heal 36 inch holy within d3 um it starts the battle full and when you use it once it is empty you can only eat everything which honestly makes sense they're ogres you're not going to sip, you know? There's they're no entrees here. With yeah, the they're chugging. Pot. They're chugging. And um, you can't build around it because the mechanic to refill it has nothing to do with how you build your army or even how you play. If an enemy model happens to die within six of it, it's full again. Um, But, like, your opponent knows that. So even if he's fighting near it, which he usually just wouldn't choose to, 
you can still take a casualties off farther away than six, like from the back of the unit. And so it, it very rarely gets filled back up again. It's like a it's like a one-time D3 heal. For uh, your, on the off chance you get alpha striked by a turn one, mm -hmm. someone's in your face, um, or someone teleports into your back line and goes for an objective. Uh, again, it's a, it's inconsistent refill. So really think about it as a once per battle. Yeah, I would heal. I would very much think of it as a once per battle heal. And even in the case of an alpha strike where they're coming immediately in, um, it would be full then because you wouldn't have healed yet. Yeah, so, I, I guess what I guess what I'm saying is like don't build around it. It's not like you're going to be constantly refilling it. It's a very right, right. unlikely situation for it to happen. What one call that I'll probably make here, and uh, I'd love your thoughts to think if if you think this is viable or not. But I see a lot of uh, wizard ogre players taking the Bailwind Vortex in combination with the the more pot to extend the range of their spells while keeping them in range of the more pot. Yeah, 100%. do you think it's worth it? Or yeah, if if I were playing. Wizards in an ogre. If I was playing wizards in a gutbuster army, I'd go Bailwind 100. percent Yeah, yeah. Just gotta find one model if you don't already own it. Yeah, the thing is looking rough to get. Actually, I see it in real stores, but it's hard to find it on their web store, right? So it is super tough. Uh, what is also super tough is your first list. Uh, that's a nice little segue. How good hey. is that? Hey, this is pro. Like prof professional content creator now. Uh, so the first list we're going to go through is uh, Boulderhead, and that's part of the reason why we kind of skipped over Boulderhead when we we're talking about it, because we're actually going to deep dive into, into this particular list, and then we have a bonus list to talk about. So Boulderhead is uh, going to give you a whole bunch of things. By the way, um, if you go with Ogamore tribes, this is an optional thing. So some armies force you into a sub-allegiance. So Cities of Sigma, for example, I must choose one right. of the cities while in in the ogres i don't have to choose it so i want to custom build my artifact my command trait and all that stuff i don't have to but in this case where the first list you're going to go with is bald ahead uh, bald, uh, blood gullet blood gullet we're both are we bald ahead or gullet it's, it's bald ahead yeah, yeah i was on <laughs> i'm looking at the wrong i've got the i've got my my uh my book in front of me as well and i, I pulled up the wrong book so what do you get I'm, I'm all over the shop. It's it's early morning, <laughs> folks. Fine. Please forgive me. Um, so what are you going to get by going bald ahead? So first things first, uh, the, the ability you get is going to add plus one to the wound characteristic of friendly bald ahead monsters. In addition, bald ahead heroes on stone horns or thunder tusks uh, instead of one can be given a mount trait. Yeah, normally how it works. Is that, is that good? Normally how it works is it's just like artifacts. You get one mount trait for your army, but then if for every battalion you take, not only do you get an extra artifact, but you get an extra mount trait that something could have. However, in Boulderhead, everybody can have mount traits, it's fine, which is nice. Um, as it happens, the way you build end up building most of your lists, that doesn't do anything because you're almost always taking a battalion and two heroes and stuff, but it's nice. The adding one wounds to all of your monsters is middling okay uh because the damage table cares about how many wounds you've taken and not like um a specific wound number you know current the extra one wound isn't going to like make it harder to chart your guys necessarily but hey 
I'm not complaining about plus five wounds, plus four wounds, you know, in your army with a bunch of monsters. So and it could be that good. one extra wound that keeps that stone horn alive, and then you trigger your more pot yeah. to heal it up, and it could be the difference maker. One one is nice. Yeah, Obviously, if you, you want more. If you leave a stone horn on one wound, you still have ten capturing bodies next to that objective. That's huge, you know. So hey, take take it where you can get it. Um, so I'm hearing I'm hearing already that this is starting to push us towards a monster potentially a monster hero route. Obviously, don't have to do a whole army of it, but we're starting to get rewarded here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the next thing you get is your deadly hail. So add one to the prayer roll uh, of pulverizing hailstorm when the Balderhead priest is chanting that prayer. So that is a four to a three. Yep. And so now it works on a three. It's um, pure happenstance that it like happens to do this. Uh, but that's something. It, it's sort of... It's sort of whatever, yeah. It's a nice to have. Yeah. It, is it, that, uh, it's like an accidental 1% improvement on the strength of the army, but hey, I'll take it. Uh, your 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 Thunder Tusk can cast this prayer, well, pre, pray this prayer. Is that right? Yeah, in addition to whatever War Scroll prayer they happen to have, yeah. Yeah, so 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 there is a combination here where if you did take a Balderhead monster, which happens to be the, um, the Thunder Tusk, it also could get this uh, this prayer as well. So yeah, and yeah, it's pretty, the best prayer, good. no question, out of all three of them. So, nice. so getting it from a four to three is, is quite useful. Mm -hmm. It's not as consistent as a two, but with with no damage coming back to you, which is what some priests happen if they fail that roll. Uh, that's not bad. Yeah, and um, I mean we we're not hurt by failing our prayers, but because uh, corn is an angry god, and the uh, and the great ma is forgiving. But dig deep where your ear heals is our command ability. And I've been sort of underselling the last two, but that's because this command ability slurps up all the enjoyment juice almost in this whole sub-faction. Dig deep your heals. Hmm? So you can use this command ability at start of any any phase. Oh, that's pretty sexy. Yes, at the um, start of any phase. So it could be could be hero, it could be movement, it could be shooting, it could be bravery, a battle shock, uh, any phase. If you do so, pick one friendly Balderhead hero that has a mount. Until the end of that phase, use the top row of that unit's damage table, regardless of how many wounds it has suffered. Yeah. And okay. This, uh, this once again changes the game because... So it's, every, it's any phase. Obviously, you think immediately, oh, combat. Now, my Frostlord on Stonehorn that has two wounds left is just fighting at full power and he gets to blast someone. And that's great. The, the obvious thing is the great thing. That's very good. However, there's an alternative use that I use probably equally as often, and that is in the movement phase. Because rocketing a wounded Stonehorn back up to 12-inch move or 14 if it's hungry to turn 4, turn 5 when everything is really wounded just zoom to an objective out of nowhere and steal the game. Big. Very important. And so, um, yeah, I, I tend to half and half use use combat phase and movement phase for those two reasons, because movement is so important in this game, especially with an army that is strong because of its movement. You want to make sure that it's always moving very well. Is there any reason you'd use them in the hero phase, in the uh, battle shock phase, in any other alternative phase other than, let's say, combat, movement, 
shooting shooting is not you don't does your monster table impact your shooting at all I mean, for the it, thunder tusk it makes your thunder tusk shots worse so i suppose you could use it in the shooting phase if you had a thunder tusk to get um to get all of your dice or, but i'm hearing it's mostly melee melee and movement which would be your two reasons to use that command ability yeah i'm i'm thinking of a situation where it's like you know, you're outnumbered on the last objective in the last part of the game by like four models, and you have a Thunder Tusk nearby, and you still have a command point, and so you use it to maybe like kill five of them and win the game or something. But it's like really corner case that you would probably ever use it on a in the shooting phase. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I was trying to think if there was any other reason you would use it outside those two phases, and I, I was struggling. I didn't know if you yeah. had a, an example. Now, if um. If the thunder tusk shot is how it used to be, then yeah, you'd use that all the time, of course. Uh, to you know, oh, I'll just shoot six mortal wounds into this guy and and free him up right away. But the fact that you're always leaving guys alive whenever you're shooting, because of how the ability works, um, it, yeah, not really, not really very much. Um, you got your command trait, which is uh, Lord of Beasts. So friendly boulderhead monsters that are wholly within 12 of the general at the start of the movement phase can move an extra inch when they make a normal move in that phase. Yeah, I mean, this is all right. Your, your hero monsters usually go off on their own on some grand expedition off 20 inches away from everybody else. So it's generally only affecting you unless you're going for some Yorl bad, like I've determined that this is my alpha strike thing, and so I'm going to try to do that. Um, but, um, you know, it's an extra inch. Okay. It's not bad. Okay. It could be the difference between getting a charge off and not getting a charge off, or even being in charge range. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it's not too bad. Uh, and finally, the brand of the Svard. So, uh, in the if the bearer has a mount, add plus one to, to hit rolls for attacks made with the melee weapon, or the mount's melee weapon. All right, now we're cooking with barbecue sauce. This is good. This is probably the only truly good artifact for Beast Claw in the entire book. It's so good that during my emerging meta series, when tournaments were running, uh, the brand of the Sephard was being like in the top five artifacts across all of Age of Sigma outside of um, Malign Sorcery. Like this just keeps coming up again and again. Um, so yeah, brand of the Sephard must be good. Yeah, because... Stonehorns, for all their um, attack profiles and charging, and it looks like they do great damage. Their damage is actually very swingy. It's very unreliable. You're, you know, you're hitting on fours with the big horns. It's fours and threes, so unreliable. But then, like big damage numbers at the end of it. So it's you're getting big swings. The bell curve is very flat, in other words. And then for some of its other attacks, it's like you have a d6 attacks, and then it's doing a d3 damage. And so there's just a ton of randomness. One of the main parts of competitive play and list building is trying to reduce the randomness and however you can, because randomness is the is the killer of of good plans, right? So Brandon's fart is awesome. Hitting on threes with the giant horns, hitting on twos with the crushing hooves and stuff. It's awesome. It's fun. It's what you've always wanted in a beast claw army. If you've been playing beast claw for the past four years, you have always wanted this this thing right here. And um, I, I don't have anything bad to say about it, aside from the person who has it is capable of dying in the game of Age of Sigmar, and that's a drag. But hey, 
you shoot, <clears throat> you shoot missiles at people. It's great. And there's very few artifacts out there that actually do affect the uh, the mount. So yeah, I think there's uh, three in the whole game. Like it's very rare, and they specifically say it. Notice how it says with the mounts melee weapons. Yeah. Uh, for those new to the game, artifacts of power as a blanket rule in the whole game simply don't affect mount attacks ever. And except Correct. in like three cases, it specifically says it. If it specifically says it, it does, but that's very rare. Yeah, mo most artifacts when you're taking them only affect the rider, which means that, and and, and we know that most of the the um, the damage comes out of the monster that is being ridden on. So being able to actually get an artifact that boosts the consistency uh, of the damage, which is why Brandis the Sfart is just so popular, and I'm sure other armies, uh, there's many armies that I would love, like my. My my free guild general on his on his griffin. I would love to get more consistency from the attack rolls oh, yeah. from the griffin. Mm -hmm. um, that would just change the game completely. So the fact that you've got this this is clearly why. Uh, while the other the other sub allegiances or the 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 great more or the the great Maws or the more tribes, while they're really good, there's just an absolute clear winner here. Um, especially if you're going a monster mount route. Yeah. If you aren't going monsters and if you are going more just the generic ogres, then this is this is not valuable to you. Yeah, brand of the Sfard and dig deep your heels are so strong that even in some mixed lists that only that run one hundred and sixty points of gutbusters and a single frost lord on Stonehorn, sometimes they even take Boulderhead just for him, so that he can have brand and dig deep because it's so good. Not all the time, but that's like how that's how perfectly designed Boulderhead sub faction is. The things that I would do for that artifact in a different army, but speaking <laughs> hey, of the army, I'll take here is some bite from uh, from flesh eater cords any day of the week. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, there's always somebody better. It's best not to dwell. You can't get everything for everyone. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's, it's very thematic, which is what I really like about these builds. Is that it does reward you for the things that you want to take. Mm -hmm. So. Putting it all into practice, I guess, is this bullhead list. So uh, I'm going to read it out, and especially for the podcast listeners who might not be able to see this, uh, I'll read it out, and you tell me why you chose it, uh, what does it all mean, and you know, it might be worth calling out here, team, that uh, this is one list. This is not the silver bullet. This is not the the Haywo five and O list that you're going to take to your next tournament and you're going to crush your enemies and uh, and drink from their their skull. It's not that type of list. But rather, it's, a, it's, a, it's putting the theory into practice. If you really like your Thunder Tusks and you want to take two Thunder Tusks or you want to take two Stone Horns, you do you. Uh, this is just merely an example. Yeah, I'm glad you so, mentioned that in the outset because um, I was going to as well. I've thrown you some curveballs here with this list, um, mostly so that I could talk about the options you could have here. But this is a very reasonably competitive army in Beast Clock. And you can hot swap out several components of it to your liking. And you know, with with, um, with the gargans coming very soon, you may want to put a mega gargan in this list instead. So well, there's again, no may about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the oh, I can't wait to see what that looks like. So let's start from the top. Your Ogamore tribes. You're coming from the realm of Shimon, and you are bald ahead. You've got two leaders. We've got a Huskard on Stonehorn and a Huskard on Thundertusk. The, the, the I see how I tricked on... you guys. I was saying Thundertusks are bad the entire show. And then I put one in the list. This is why you watch the whole show. 
This is the Vince Russo sw uh, Swift. It's like, uh, uh, you just like it changes <laughs> pitch. Yeah, suddenly that fastball's coming and it's 65. Huskot on Stonehorn is the general, comes with the Lord of Beasts, has a blood vulture. The artifact is Brand of the Sfarge and the mount trait as Metal Cruncher. The other hero is the Huskard on uh, Thunder Tusk. It also has a blood vulture. The artifact is the plate of perfect protection. Uh, nothing, nothing drives a content creator <laughs> insane like peas, the pop. And you've just done plate of the perfection, perfect perfection. Uh, and then the prayer is pulverizing hailstorm. You've also got the mount trait of rim frost hide. So, start from the top. Why is the Stonehorn the general? Talk to me about metal cruncher. Talk to me about why you chose what you chose. Oh, so there's a little bit on the end there. There is a Eurobad battalion. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And you, you, you've got your bad. Uh, and, and just if, if you're wondering as well, okay, we've got two, uh, two Mournfang packs, two Mournfang pack. We've got the two Stonehorn Beast Riders, two, sorry, Be Stonehorn Beast Rider, Stonehorn Beast Rider, Stonehorn Beast Rider. Um, okay. That's, that's the list in itself. Yeah. And so, uh, why is the Huskard the general? Because I wanted to give him Lord of Beasts. Why are we playing a Huskard on Stonehorn at all? And not a Frost Lord on Stonehorn. In fact, I don't see a Frost Lord on Stonehorn anywhere on this list. And everyone says it's the best model in the entire book. So why aren't I playing with one? Because can't fit it in 2K. And you have to take a Huskard on Stonehorn to have the Euro Bad Battalion. And you got to take the Battalion as well. So Huskard's the general because I want that plus one move on him. It serves him way more than the Huskard. And so there was a clear choice there. Um, I've given him Blood Vulture, and in fact, I've given all the Beast Riders Blood Vulture as well. Uh, and I've given the Thunder Tusk Blood Vulture, because that's a, weapon, uh, that's a weapon option on all your monsters. You can choose Blood Vulture or two really bad things. Take the Blood Vulture. It lets you do a Mortal Wound on a two-up with a gigantic radius around you. I mean, it's one Mortal Wound, but I'm looking at five two-ups for Mortal Wounds. Like, that stuff adds up, and I think it's a 30-inch range. It's got a big range. Yeah, if I remember correctly, unless it's changed, I do remember it being what, thirty inch. It was quite generous. What one of the few ways you used to be able to snipe wizards before the the um the yeah the dispel kind of moved from eighteen to thirty. Mm -hmm. And so, metal cruncher is the mount trait on Huskard. Metal cruncher allows you to at the beginning of each combat phase, if you're fighting someone with a four up save or better meaning 4-up, 3-up, or 2-up, or, strangely, a War Machine category. You do a D6 Mortal Wounds instantly at the beginning of combat, and that's on your combat and on the opponent's combat. This is very nice for immediate, like, this is very nice for some Keeper of Secrets piles into your guy, makes him fight last, but it doesn't matter because at the beginning of combat, you deal 4 Mortal Wounds to her and she's charted. And now she sucks at hitting, like, initially, even if you get caught out, you know, out of nowhere. Or it makes your charge even more overwhelming, where you're charging in, you're doing four, you know, you're doing a bunch of mortal wounds, maybe four, maybe five, from your impact hit. And then, beginning of combat, you're crunching in for another D6. And stuff is already quite wounded before you're even rolling attacks. Which is very nice as well. Um... The alternative, because there's two choices that people always decide between, and it's Metal Cruncher and Black Clatterhorn. 
Black Clatterhorn makes your giant horn attacks plus one to hit, which means they're on twos if you have a Brand of the Svard, or threes normally, or you take Metal Cruncher. Which one is better? There isn't one that's better. It's what you're expecting to play against, it's how you like to play, and it's what excites you more. I would say sometimes Metal Crusher doesn't do anything because you're just fighting stuff with terrible saves. Yeah. So it has the chance of doing nothing. And in fact, some of the most durable units in the entire game technically have a save characteristic of like five. Hearthguard Berserkers, for instance. You can't Metal Crunch them, even though they're the most durable unit in the whole game. So sometimes Metal Cruncher is going to do nothing. But when it does something, it's amazing. Black Clatterhorn is like always that 75% good. So it's just a choice. I like it. No, I, I like it. I, I do see Metal Cruncher being used more than others. Uh, I, maybe that was to do with Petrofix Elite running around with the old rule set. Uh, now that that's kind of changed, will that change the popularity of Metal Cruncher? Will it go somewhere else? But I think you made a really good point around, you know, the Black Clatterhorn versus the Metal Cruncher and what might drive your decision. Because I think that's the key, right? Like, there is no one best approach. To, uh, it's just going to be the meta, what you're expected to play against, and your play style as well. I know when I played up against a whole bunch of uh, Ogre lists, they have really been built around a turn one. Um, they, they're going to take first turn. They're going to charge me before I get any of my boosts up or any defense. I probably got limited command points up my sleeve at the time, and they're going to pin me in my, my, my zone. If that's your style, then clearly there's one particular build. But if that's not your style, find, find what, what works for you. Yeah, that, that happens not to be my style in the game itself, nor in Beast Claw Raiders specifically. I tend to not build towards going for the big alpha immediately, like choosing a Yorl bad so you get an extra D6 movement right away and just sort of throwing everything over there and trying to alpha pin them. I, I tend to spread out more, try to stay far away for ranges and try to just make sure that I'm lining up all the best charges and keeping their objectives. There's definitely different ways you can play even the same list for the most part in Beast Claw. And it's probably just a personality thing. And this is a two-drop list, right? Because your Earl Bag takes... Yeah, your Earl Bag in includes your Stonehorn, includes your two Mournfane pack. It includes your three Beast, uh, beast Riders, your Stonehorn Beast Riders. And it gives you the unmodified hit rolls for the attacks made uh, by the melee weapons used from uh, the Battalion. If there are six, they the attack inflicts one mortal wound on the target in addition to the normal damage. So the fact yeah, that basically everything here is doing an additional mortal wound on a six to hit other than the, the, the Thunder Tusk is pretty sexy. And it's a two drop, so you get to to dictate the, uh, the, the, the way the battle starts. Yeah, I'm trying to gain a lot of residual power from a list like this. So for instance, I'm 1940 in my points which means I'm almost always going to get the Triumph, and the Triumph is huge, I would say, for Beast Claw specifically. Triumphs are very powerful. You don't need a hero next to anything. You just choose a unit on the entire table, and you choose a phase even to use it in, and you're just Dane from above, rerolling all saves on that guy. Because, There's very few, you know, very few you people build around... Up. Very people, few people build around the Triumph, and... The trap here is that I've got 1940. That is normally um, quite a, gen a generous endless spell. That 
you know, for 60 points, I could get a lot of different endless spells on the table and get, get myself in the 2K. Well, yeah, I could do that as well. I could do a command point. So, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really impressed that you even called out that you're playing for the triumph here because I can't imagine a time where you, you won't get the triumph here. I almost feel like you've almost guaranteed this. I, you very rarely just see a list at 1920, 1910. Yeah, especially now with um, everybody's got wizards for the most part. There, There's so many endless spells people could be playing. You can buy an extra command point. 1940 is just a number that you're simply just always going to have the triumph for. And for this army specifically, I would say, not this list specifically, but like this army, uh, the triumph is huge for you. Rerolling hits is giant. Rerolling wounds is clearly the worst one, but it's still very good for consistency. A lot of your stuff is winning on threes. And rerolling saves is, of course, amazing as well, especially on, you know, four up monsters with a five up after save that you just don't want to leave the table. And so and for anyone who doesn't know what, what triumph is, triumph is a optional thing that happens uh, before the game commences. You look at the two different lists. If um, somebody has uh, got less points than the other, they roll on a table. So you can't guarantee yourself one particular triumph. You roll on a table and you that once per game ability. So by, by having less points on the table, you can always guarantee that you'll win the roll-off, but then it's about getting the roll. But most of them are pretty useful, especially in this type of build. Yeah, and um, on top of that, uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. Um, next up... Should I talk about Stonehorns? Are we are we like talking about their war scrolls, or can people kind of look at their war scrolls? Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously, with the Earl Bad, you've got to take the Husk Art on Stonehorns. You can't take any other builds. You you've got to have that for the battalion. Mm -hmm. is, is there any particular reason you got the loadout, and maybe more importantly as well, why would you not go a second uh, Husk Guard? Uh, you've got the points for it. Why wouldn't you go a second husk guard on Stonehorn as opposed to the, the Thunder Tusk? That I'm really curious about the Thunder Tusk in this list. I think it's about an even trade for the most part. It's it's not that Huskard on Thunder Tusk is good. I've played with it a little bit. Um, I've seen Doom playing with one a little bit. Um, after the points reduction, I would never call them good, but I think they're a side grade from your second Huskard on Stonehorn if you can't afford a Frostlord instead somewhere else in the list. That causes you to play in a slightly different way that may or may not be better. But it's upping your diversity a tad, and I don't think it's necessarily hurting you. So what am I talking about playing differently? What I mean is, so if you have... A Huskard on Stonehorn, the guy on top does nothing. Like, he's punching and kicking, literally, that's what it's called, for, for no damage. Um, when you charge in, you do impact hits, and then it's got Rock Hard Horns, which have three damage a pop with a Ren 2, four damage if you got the charge, and it's six of those attacks. They're hitting on fours and threes. Sometimes it's threes and threes if you're on Brand of the Sfart or whatever. And then a bunch of Crushing Hooves. So you have impact hits, you have move 12, move 14 if you're hungry. You do great damage on the charge. And you have Stone Skeleton, which makes it like worth playing, right? So Line Breakers is a command ability that the Huskard on Stonehorn have. You can use this command ability at the start of the combat phase. If you do so, pick one friendly Mornfang pack 
that is wholly within 12. If you do, the Mornfang get plus one damage on their Mornfang tusks, which makes their Mornfang tusks from, uh, they're like fours and threes rend one damage one. Now they're fours and threes rend one damage two. If Mornfang got the charge, it's also plus one damage. So now, so now it's fours and threes rend one damage three, and it's four attacks a model. I'm not doing it in this list, but if you wanted to play with more Mornfang and kind of have them be a little helper unit near your Huskard, you can line up big boy damage actually with Mornfang. And most people tend to think the Mornfang themselves are kind of lackluster. But it's I think I saw somebody just did very well with a unit of six Mornfang, I believe, in a in a list not last week, maybe two weeks ago. If you line up the Holy Within 12, which can be a little tricky on the charge with bigger units of Mornfang, like you can really, they can slap. It's hilarious. But anyway, so you could also go with a Huskard on Thundertusk. And the reason I put that guy in here was to add more of a ranged component to the army that can free those units during the shooting phase, like helping free someone who's trapped in combat. Because giving trapped in combat is the way Boulderhead loses the game. It's when your main weaknesses are blobs of tar that once they've surrounded you, the guy is just kind of stuck there for the rest of the game and dies. Like don't get don't get yourself surrounded. And Husguard also has buffs to hand out, which they have uh, War Scroll prayers. So one of the prayer is heal D three wounds, which used to be the thing that everyone you know, hyper cared about, and it, it's sort it of used to be the people used to take husk guards as the healing, the healing, and the snowball. Yeah, they were the two like the people big would, things. And and uh, if you, the more thunder tusks you have, the easier the prayer is to pray. So people would play like four husk guards on thunder tusk and just heal each other up every turn. And you know, people didn't like that. Um, but they also have winter strength, which uh, you can add one to wound rolls for attacks made by a friendly PCR unit. So that's their other prayer on the war scroll. And adding one to wound rolls means you're wounding on twos, which is everything. Because almost all of your guys wound on threes with almost everything they do in the army. And that buff, plus the added ability to free guys from combat. So consider, here's a Thunder Tusk. He shoots his Frost Wreathed Ice and does a few mortal wounds to something. And then charges in and does impact hits. It's just that much more of a way to free stuck-in units. And a Husguard can do that, but he doesn't have a buff, and he's not going to Frost Wreath Ice stuff. However, he's faster, and he does damage in melee instead of zero damage in melee. So you, as you can see, it's a side grade, depending on how you like to play. Or maybe instead of using five of the same copy-pasted guy, you play one that's different. Because, mm. you know, hobby matters too. I have cool-looking Thunder Tusks, and I want to play with them, damn it. So, I, I think you've, you've also made a really good point as well. And, you know, the, I think some comments in the chat around, you know, list diversity and, you know, talking about, you know, the optimization of builds and, you know, talking about the combination of your, your, your gut busters and your o and your, your beast claw. Or, you know, I, I see people doubling down on stone horns um, or, you know, what does a, a, a thunder tusk bring to the table? And by no means am I here to say the Thunder Tusks are inferior. They just bring something different to the table. 
And if you want to have this turn one charging, everyone's going to hit as quick as possible and you all kind of do this this one kind of battle plan, um, do Stonehorns. But if you're looking for some diversity, if you're looking for some some um, some different tools in your toolbox and sacrificing that one particular build, this is where that Thunder Tusk comes into play. Um, and, and I think this is, again, where each player can manipulate this to the best of their ability. If they want to drop some of the Mournfang pack or, you know, drop some of the, the Beast Riders, get themselves an Icebrow Hunter as well as some Frost Sabres and, you know, get some sideboard shenanigans again to bring some diversity to the list, absolutely do what you need to do. This yeah. is no silver bullet list. Yeah. I, I made this list to be able to use it as a talking point for all the different options you have, even if the lists end up pretty similar looking, like the choices you're making really change how you play. And uh, to be clear, at least in my opinion, uh, Thunder Tusks are like vastly in inferior to Stonehorn just across the board. However, it's not like stupid to use one if you're already playing a bunch of Stonehorns that it can help because it's a helper for your Stonehorns. Um, if you're the kind of army that likes to chill in a you know, position on the battlefield where you kind of have your Stonehorns out there and your Huskard on Thundertusk is kind of moving around in the mid zone, kind of reasonably safe and just sort of supporting your other things. But as a, as a general supporting unit, it needs stuff there to support. So you're going to be running a bunch of stone horns and then choosing a thunder tusk to help them rather than like running i suppose technically you could play like seven thunder tusks in a in a torbed list or something like that but nobody's tried it uh some hero out there might have to but that's definitely neither here nor there um it's got an artifact called plate of perfect protection which you might not have heard of viewers because it's one of the new realm artifacts that everybody says are 100 useless and they're mostly right. However, this one is the closest you're going to get to an ethereal amulet. Yeah. It's the closest you're going to get. Um, it reduces, well, actually it doesn't reduce, it considers rend one specifically as no rend. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like minus one rend, it's just like ignores rend one. If I'm rend two or rend three, that still counts. But if I'm a rend one um, attacking the 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 husker uh, the the, yeah, the husker on on thunder tusk, uh, I, I I I don't apply that minus one modifier. But minus two minus three still applies, and it doesn't bring a minus two down to a minus one. It's just I ignore the minus one characteristic. Yeah, and that's pretty nice because they're naturally minus one to get hit in melee. So now you're talking about a four up save monster who's minus one to get hit in melee and ignores rend one, you're starting to get reasonably durable, even though you don't have the five up after save that all the um, stone horns have. But then I gave it the mount trait. Oh, I should talk about the alternative to plate of perfect protection. If you want a defensive artifact for your beast claw army, the two choices that you have are plate of perfect perfection or Alvergear rune tokens. And this is a choice between, uh, this is risk and reward. Uh, Alvagar rune tokens are once a game. You choose when to use them. And until your next hero phase, you can reroll all saves. That thing that has it. So if you're confident that you can choose the perfect moment to use it, 
then rune tokens are better. But then for the rest of the game, you're you know you're just normal. Yeah, nothing. And if they double turn you, it's until your next hero phase. You get two turns of it. Not bad. Plate of perfect protection just simply always works. North rend one. If the army you're playing against has a bunch of zero rend and two rend, well, you feel kind of bad, right? It does nothing. But you're not like trying to choose the right moment. And if you choose wrong, it's sort of like you don't have an artifact. So is it plate? Is it alpha gear? It's sort of what you expect to play against. It's how you like to play. Do you like to push the big red button when you think it might be right, even though it's more risky, but you can get more of a reward? I went with plate of perfect protection on this guy because I wanted to also talk about the interaction with Rhymefrost uh, Hide Mount Trait, which reduces incoming rend by one. And it reduces incoming rend by, and it's it reduces the, uh, I believe, hold on, let me read the exact thing, so we gotta be super uh, clear, I'm scrolling up to it. All right. Um, worsen the rend characteristic, specifically of melee weapons that target this model by one, which means incoming rend two, the characteristic is now one. And so plate stops that too now. That's cheeky. So that's cheeky. With a mount oh. trait and an artifact, we got Ethereal back almost. There's some big there's some rend three chads rolling around the game. I'm not gonna I say mean, there's a written minus five Chad running around as well. Yeah, although that's only on sixes, I think. But Voltanos is pretty cool anyway. Um, but, I mean, that's close enough. That's that's good enough for government work, as we always say in America. So, and that's specifically a Thunder Tusk uh, mount trait. Like, you can't put Ryan Frost hide on a, on a stone hole because they get different uh, mount traits. And what, what I like about that, Joe, if I just pause for a second and let you have a drink, is that, um, and that wasn't me having a go at you at all, um, that's, that's me saying that I, I want to sit in this moment and appreciate the combination that you've just put together because uh, should somebody go for that Thunder Tusk, um, they know that it's going to be ignoring Ren minus one and Ren minus two because of this combination, which means that I'm going to start ignoring it. So I'm like, well, why would I? Why would I put all my attacks into this, knowing that obviously, unless I got mortal wounds, but if I'm going to put Ren minus one or Ren minus two attacks, the likelihood of this to to go down is quite significant. And then you've got the ability to heal, whether it's through the more pot, whether it's through itself. It's like it becomes like, so what? And I'll focus somewhere else. And then that means that this Thunder Tusk can be roaming freely, doing what it wants to do, um, which I, I really like. That's And that's probably a reason why you might consider running a Thunder Tusk as opposed to a second Stonehorn. So, yeah, uh, playing, with your, playing with your opponent's target priority decisions is also an important part of the game as well. Because there's a conception among, I would say, competitive players that they look at a unit and they do some quick math in their head and they determine whether or not it is worth trying to deal with what that is over there that's a problem or determining that it's not worth trying to deal with that over there. And it's its like, hey, I'm just going to take my lumps from that thing and try to play the objective games and like run away from it. Like often a competitive player will make that calculation in his head. Like I simply can't kill Bastilladons, so I have to find a way of winning the game despite that fact. And so I'll just try to ignore them and just get shot by lasers a few times. Yeah, and so you're looking at a thunder tusk that's ignoring all this rend. It's ignoring rend one and two. It's a minus one to get hit normally. The thing heals. It doesn't really do that much mortal wounds with its shots actually, 
So maybe I just ignore it. Mm. And that might be the right play, but I know it's the right play as their opponent. And so now I'm going to play as if they're doing the right play, but try to get a little more out of it because I know they're not going to attack it. And so in these ways, you have neat little mind games on the table about what's worth going after or not. And it means that you can always guarantee that your Thunder Tusk is going to be unwounded. So it means that uh, you'll have its maximum movement, which means you can position it better for the late game. You could be, you know, holding or stealing an objective. You could be challenging your opponent's objective. Uh, you could be better positioning it elsewhere because, again, people aren't targeting it. So uh, it, it, for anyone listening at home, this is awesome because you're getting to hear in the minds of a competitive player. And and you're right. This is one of the things that frustrated people against Petrofix Elite OBR was that you attack them more tech guard, you know, because of their high armor save, not many would die. And then the ones that did die would come back because of the Harvester or Arcan the Black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you put so much effort in taking out a unit. A Phoenix Guard, another example, Herkar Berserker, another example. You put all this effort, so much focus trying to take down a Phoenix Guard, Herkar Berserker, that by the end of the combat, almost none are dead. And then they might have Emerald Life Swarm. They can come back from the dead. However, depending on which army we're talking about, and then it almost becomes, I feel powerless, like, what's the point? Or my plan to handle this is no longer viable, so I need to shift. And then I'm forcing my opponent to make difficult decisions that maybe they weren't planning for. And the Thunder Tusk is no different here. So love this combination. Something to try around if you haven't played with the Thunder Tusk before or if you're building up uh, your next monster yeah. and you don't have a Thunder Tusk. Yeah, and the two other things about this guy is that he's also like, if your opponent looks, you have one Thunder Tusk and four Stonehorns on the table, and and your opponent is maybe going to say, "Oh, maybe I just will attack it, right? And I'll kill it." You don't care too very much. Like you're not broken up about it. Husker on Thunder Tusk is probably only ever going to get like fifty-five percent value at any time. And so, with your big, with your distraction pieces that you're trying to confuse your opponent on whether or not they should attack, you want to make sure that whatever they choose you can roll with it and turn it into um turn it into a good thing for you and so like if your house guard on thunder Tusk dies it's not like everything's ruined like okay my weakest monster just died fine i can i can deal with that and if they leave it alive the whole time then you just have it be 55 percent annoying value for the whole game and slowly punish them, you know, overturns for it. So it's nice to be able to roll with the punches. That's one of the things that um, Beast Claw can do very well. And the second thing is Plate of Perfect Protection and Rhyme Frost Hide. That makes it pretty durable. So you could even play a Frost Lord on Thunder Tusk because the prayers suck anyway. And now you have a three up save that's ignoring two rend and is a minus one hit. And he doesn't do zero damage in melee anymore. It's still not good melee damage, but he at least has a Frost Spear. You know, so there's there's some options there. I mean, there's a lot of focus and a lot of attention, and we've we've had a pretty robust discussion so far. I can't believe we're almost approaching two hours. That's uh, this is pretty crazy, and we're only halfway through the list. I'll but I kind up. of no, 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 no. That's not that's not what I'm saying at all. But rather, we're putting so much focus in the heroes, and I guess this is an army that is going to be rewarded by tweaking and modifying and and finding that right combination and synergy of your heroes because they're going to cost you so many points you know 300 350 400 if you're going into the frost lords then you might want to consider then how do i support and how do i build around it so that we make the most and 
this is kind of where we go into the, the units, the behemoths. This is where we can kind of tweak and modify and, and, and tailor. Uh, we've got 600, 600, 700 points tied into our, our heroes, but we've got the Mournfang pack. So the two Mournfang pack, what does it bring to the table other than being a required in the Earlbad? Um, light chaff. They're on the big cavalry bases, so you can scoot them sideways and be speed bumps if need be. They're also punchy enough to be able to be a backline. Their job could be backline cleaners, where you're getting 10-man units of summoned gore that pop onto the table, or you know, 10 ghouls or something, or five chameleon skinks or whatever, or a tree revenants, you know. The things that people play that cost almost no points that they use just as cheeky little, I'm just going to steal this objective, so you need to keep a guy there, even though you would rather get that guy into the game after capturing it. Mornfang, two Mornfang are fully capable of just rolling into 10 gores and killing all of them. With Prey Hackers and Iron Fists, they got three attacks, two damage each on, on top. And if you're considering the difference between Gargant Hackers which have big three damage, rend one, ooh, looks good, but only two attacks versus three attacks with threes and threes instead of fours and threes, but no rend and only two damage. The math works out, Prey Hackers, Iron Fists, every day. And it scales up with all the buffs and unit sizes you could possibly put onto it. And it pretty much stays consistent, even down to the bad armor, even down to the, like, you don't want to be fighting it good armor, like three armor and you know, four up rerolling everything and stuff like that. It it isn't a big enough difference to choose the Gargan hackers pretty much in any capacity. And Iron Fists are very useful when using Mornfang as a speed bump against 140 attacks because Marauders had to charge them. And you're kicking back like 10 mortal wounds just simply because you had to roll hundred saving throws. It's uh it's reasonably useful. And it's it's 12 wounds. Hey, that's almost a wound of 10 points, right? Like that's not bad. So you your your behemoths here, your your stone beast riders are your I not only um are they behemoths, but they're also battle line. Mm -hmm. Um just a question about because your battle line fulfillment is is being done by the beast riders, so they're also your battle line, so we don't have to worry about that for a second. So if I was thinking about screens, um do you and, and let's say I wasn't taking this particular battalion. Um, would say the, uh, the the frost sabers would they be a viable screening option as an alternative build, um, or would you think about things like noblars? Or do you like Mornfang pack uh, as as a good kind of screener slash also damage dealer? I guess the frost sabers and the and the the noblars aren't really the the best damage dealers in the, in this in this particular army. No, um, but they are cheap chaff. Yeah, what I like about the Mornfang is that um, they're able to do something. So the best chaff in the whole game, when you think about the concept of chaff, is chaff that can not only protect your other units from getting hit for a turn or more, but actually do something on top of that. Like that's the best, right? Is your hold on. That's why I love. That's why I love my goblins. I love my my my, my grots because they've got netters. They can do mortal wounds with a loon boss, mm -hmm. and they're more than just a screen. Yeah, and or your you know big unit of skinks. 
that you've either buffed up to be an anvil, so they're on a three-up save, or you put a lot of combat juice into them so they can always be, like, shooting all their blowgun darts. And then when they get charged on a four-up, they move back and shoot. And, you know, the best chaff in the game does something, and often does something, like, really well, on top of being decent at protecting your other stuff. And Mornfang are at least able to participate in the combat phase. The downside is, of course, they're more expensive, and they don't cover as much area. You know, two of them, are big cav bases, but it's not going to actually bubble wrap anything. And if you're running, like, six Mornfang, you're not trying to bubble wrap. You're trying to get that charge and just do 50 damage to something, right, with a linebreaker Huskard. So they are required... I play them because they're required. I probably would not play them if they weren't required. But a lot of the units in the whole game, just as an umbrella, they clearly are intended for a certain job, usually. And whether or not they're good at that job is like one thing. But whether or not you can make them good for some other job is often another discussion to have. So in that respect... Here's two lead belchers. Like, they suck at shooting, so you say they suck. Well, you can use them as a speed bump, and let's say 30 witch elves have to spend a combat phase. Even though they don't want to, they have to kill these two lead belchers. That's one out of five of your opponent's combat phases of the game that just is basically wasted. And so lead belchers are bad at their normal job, but you found a job that bought you an entire turn against like a great army. And so sometimes you can find an alternative use for stuff that is really quite strong on the table. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, you know, something, it's something that I really enjoy playing like with my Aether wings right now. I've been playing with Aether yes. for about 12, 12 months now, even when they were 50 points, I would take an Aether wing over a command point because it will help zone off a zone off a part of the board from a deep strike. It can challenge an objective. It can charge in and waste somebody's combat. There's a lot of different uses. And I guess when I think about things like the uh, the Frost Sabres, they play a similar role where they have the ability to charge an objective early, to screen, to to hold on to an objective in the back end. Um, you know, and then in combination, obviously, with an Icebrow Hunter, you get some even more abilities being able to bring them on the side and, you know, to, to threaten the opponent or uh, force them to, to deploy in a way that they wouldn't normally deploy. So, um, and, and again, again, there's no one way to build these lists. I guess I'm just mm -hmm. trying to get the, the thinking behind uh, the Mournfang pack, the, the Beast Riders. Um, is, the, is the battalion determining the build uh, yes, or, or, you know, if you were putting this into a year old bad or something else, uh, would this change? So and I think we're getting some really cool insights here, folks, uh, from Joe. So much appreciated. Yeah. And so about chaff, you have two options. Obviously, it's Frost Savers on the Beast Claw side, or you have Noblars on the Gutbuster side. And so as two different types of chaff, both of these work pretty well as chaff um, because Frost Savers are pretty cheap and they're on little cav bases, so you can string them out. Six or so will mostly protect a unit from one side. That's pretty useful, 120 points for six of them. And they're simply awful at fighting, and they're awful at not dying, because they have a six-up save and an awful bravery. I think it's five or something. 
uh, might get a bonus if it's near the hunter, but it almost never matters because they're just killed outright. And so I, I don't have like direct access to what their bravery is because they're just always dead. It's not worth even checking. It's just like they did. Yeah. Uh, normally to save time, like somebody is like, all right, uh, please make uh, 24 saves against random. Just like, right, I'm just taking them off. This is easy. This is easy. Let's move on. I want to get a hot dog after this game. Like, don't even roll attacks. Like, those two are dead. It's fine. You're 40 Marauders. I, I feel like they got it here. Like, um, and then Noblars, you get even more of them for 100. And um, you get 20, which is an incredible amount. They're able to cover more surface area because you get more of them. And just like the Frost Sabers, they're terrible at fighting and terrible at not dying. In fact, they might actually be worse than Frost Sabers at fighting, which is amazing. But... They also like don't have any abilities at all, but neither do Frost Sabers, so it's sort of even. Um, they're just there to strictly die, you know, for their their die for their masters, right? Like so that something can happen. Um, with Noblars, their movement is so slow that it's going to slow down your guys behind them, which I feel is a crippling weakness of Noblars as. And your guys don't fly. That's the other thing as well. If they flew, nothing flies. Yeah. And something could have flown before, but now we don't have thermal rider. So there's no there's no fly stuff happening. And they're not ogre keyword. They're not hungry. They're not you know doing any sort of useful things like that. Frost sabers are at least move nine, which is pretty nice. Move nine chaff when you're screening for say twelve gluttons that are on move eight. That's what I like. That's perfect. Your chaff's going out a little bit, an extra inch even. So you got that space you know in front of them. They're not slowing your gluttons down, whereas the Noblars really will. The bonus with Noblars is that if you want to sink, in my opinion, too many points into them, you can play with 60 and make them Battleshock immune with a Tyrant, um, which is sort of like a DPS test uh, for your opponent. It's it's probably Wait, what's fun. DPS? What's DPS for everyone playing at home? Oh, damage per second, uh, which is a term from MMOs and massive multiplayer games and WoW and stuff and EverQuest. So uh, it's like a it's like a drag race that your opponent gets to do. It allows them to have fun because they get to take their car, which is their hammer, and simply figure out how much pure damage a thing can do because the Noblars are doing nothing to stop the damage. They probably don't have a save against any of it. And there's 60. So it's like, all right, can you ring the bell at the circus? Can you do 60 damage in one turn? If you can't, hey, better luck next turn. Um, it's a lot of points, though, for that many Noblars, plus it's another drop. It's another drop if you're using Frost Sabers as well. And drops are one of like your key concerns, I think, competitively in either Maw Tribe. And so I just play yet another monster. Yeah, I think the build definitely rewards you to go towards a battalion. There's, there's very few Beast Claw Raider or Ogre players that I've met who don't want the first turn. And you may not take first turn, but at, but at least determining uh, how the battle starts, you know, looking at your opponent, do they have ranged attacks? How yeah. much ranged attacks? What's the benefits? Um, if I get in early, can I get in early? Looking at the battle plan and the deployment spaces, I feel yeah, like- I want to yeah. choose who gets the first turn every game. And, yeah. I've, and I've built to do that with two drops. Um, I want to, in a vacuum, the default position is always giving my opponent the first turn every time. Because... Yeah, hmm? sorry, 
Like, please continue. continue. Is always giving my in a vacuum, right? Always giving my opponent the first turn because the first turn sucks. Just um, as a game, most things are out of range on turn one. There's not much to do. You can kind of shimmy towards objectives, and then the turn's over. It's just you're not using the combat phase during that turn. You're often not using the shooting phase during that turn. Most of your spells are out of range. Most, kind of spells, most people build their spells around offensive spells as opposed to defensive spells. Yeah. So, you know, not being able to do damage from far. Um, yeah. And so the first turn of the game is kind of like half of a turn. And then when I get to go second, if they're, if my opponent has been foolish or perhaps underestimates the movement characteristics of my guys, they've shuffled up enough so that I can charge them. And oh boy, like turn two, charge them, impact hits, do a bunch of damage, priority roll. Now I get to flip a coin and see if I just double the damage of my whole army. You also you also potentially save a bunch of command points for having to re-roll the charge because when the opponent moves closer to you, there's a you know the, the much stronger likelihood you're going to hit the charge that charges a less of a roll. So you've now gained additional resources that you could put into your your following turns. Yep, and um, a lot of times they don't quite shuffle up enough because they they just get out the old tape measure and they're like, how far can you move again? All right, I don't want to get turned too charged, and I'm like rats but i mean you're playing properly so good and then you shuffle up and make sure they can't charge you but you get close to some objectives and stuff and then when you roll priority if you win you give it back to them for a proper you go i go just how a lot of people seem to want right because that means when turn three rolls around you have the opportunity of getting the turn three double and by turn three, the turn three double usually means you're scoring objectives twice, which is much more important than dealing damage twice in a row. Because the game's about points. Yeah. So some of, those, some of those objectives give you additional points in the later games or the longer you hold as well. So yeah. keep that in mind. And uh, some battle plans give you points depending on if you've gone first or second. And it's nice to be able to choose that. So... That but that's in a vacuum. As soon as your opponent is playing an army, or as soon as you're playing on a particular battle tone, uh, battle plan, suddenly all of that can change. If I'm playing against fire slayers, I have to go first. There's no choice because if I let them go first, they're going to deep strike twenty immortal Spartans onto an objective, and my whole army could fight that for five turns and not kill it and lose. So I simply have to get to the places first and body block them out from it. Uh, and, teleporting the, like that. Hmm? and this is another reason why the Thunder Tusk then comes into play because that has the ability to take out heroes behind those big walls of Hearthguard or Auric, you know, Hearthguard Berserkers. You know, we know taking out those types of armies, whether it's uh, OBR having, you know, those heroes behind the scenes, uh, whether it's going to be the, the Kalhazar, the, the Lumineth um, person with no no shoes on, you know, those types of little support pieces. Again, that's another benefit of the Thunder Tusk, where Stonehorn is going to be near impossible for them to get to those characters um, and all being chaffed up by these, you know, immovable walls. Yeah, and to be clear on Blasts of Frost Wreathed Ice, because it did change since last edition, 18-inch range, uh, target a unit, and you roll 12 dice. For each six, it's a mortal wound. So how many mortal wounds can you expect from that? 
one to three, probably. That you know, there's a big bell curve, but one to three about, I would say. And if you're targeting a unit that has ten or more guys, now it works on fives, so that's you know twice as likely. And mm -hmm. if you're targeting a unit with twenty or more guys, it works on fours. And so now, if you're targeting a unit of 20 or more, it basically does the same thing it used to, which is six on average. But if you're targeting smaller units, it's always doing a disappointing amount of damage. This is not for sniping heroes, or at least don't choose it expecting that, getting your hopes up like, I'm going to kill that slaughter priest and finally, you know, it's not. No, you, you, you can you can chip away at it. You're right. It's it's yeah. not a not a one. It's not a one. It's not a one. Uh, one attack wonder. Yeah, you're you're not boom headshot. You know, over and over like before. But all this stuff adds up, and it's all uh, on purpose. So frost wreath ice might only do one or three damage to that battlesmith, right? But now you have five vultures that are all targeting him and rolling two ups to do one each, and those add up as well. Yeah, and then you pray on your four uh, then you pray on your three up and then another three up to do another d3 and so you have all of these um i'll say brute force minor mortal wounds to overpower like one guy you know or one specific target and so that's what i'll say about that two burning questions before we move into your other list sure uh, burning question number one is um for, from a behemoth point of view, you've got your uh, your Stonehorn Beast Riders. Uh, actually, it's probably like a two-parter, right? For anyone playing at home and you're wondering, wait a second, how on earth does this fine, fine, handsome man have five behemoths? This list is wrong. Um, one, how does a behemoth uh, restriction come into play? Two, um, are you only taking these uh, Stonehorns because you have to take them in the battalion? Um, is there, a, is there a, a different uh, battle line you would be choosing? And then the final question I've got for you is about, is there any battle plans that you really like to go first on? So there's a, there's a three-parter. Okay, sure. Um, so the first one is when a... This happens a few times in the game. A rule will say, such and such monster loses the... Um, gains the battle line keyword and loses the behemoth one. When you gain the battle line keyword as a monster, you lose the behemoth keyword. And this is not... Anything that matters inside of the game, inside of the game cares about monster keyword. We're talking about force organization uh, archetype or some such, which is behemoth or behemoth, I guess. As the comments on my YouTube for the Every Army in 16 Minutes definitely noticed, it is behemoth, apparently, not behemoth. Don't worry, don't worry. I, I have words that people slam me on. Uh, I think I made... Uh, a comment once about um, Akshi being called Aksquishi or something, <laughs> and boy, oh boy, did I hear about it. Is it Akshi uh, or Akshai? That's the uh, don't, don't, please don't trigger the internet again. These, these um, made-up words, I mean, Behemoth is not made up, so that's on me, actually. But, I, I, think, I think the other one I got done for is I think I might have said um, sequestors or I didn't say uh, correctly, and boy, oh boy. Uh, oh, like a sequester, you know, like a... <laughs> Like you were sequestering yeah. range, yeah. Um, anyway. anyway, so you gain the battle line keyword, but you lose behemoth, and the only reason you can't take more than four behemoths is because the game says you can't take more than four behemoths at a two K list, and these aren't behemoths; they're monsters, but they're not behemoths. So, take as many as you have points for, 
and so we do. Um, I believe the second question was, am I just playing all of these Beast Riders because uh, they happen to be in the battalion? Yeah. You only need one unit. It requires only one in a Eurobad or a Eurobad, which is the J1. One three, right? It's, it's, you've got a choice. You've got one up to three. Yeah, when you're saying it, it, it can be hard to parse. So EBAD and JBAD, right? So EBAD, they both have the same requirements. It's one to three. It is overwhelmingly common, probably almost always, that people simply choose the one and then move on and put other stuff in the list. And that's completely legitimate. It's the norm for a reason, because it's mostly right. Um, because Stonehorn Beast Riders kind of suck. Four up save... The riders on the back do nothing. It's just you're using the monster, right? Can't give it an artifact. Can't use command abilities. Hence, cannot use dig deep your heels. Um, their damage is annoyingly random. Very hit or miss. Very wheel and woe. You know, you'll overkill some unit by six one time, and then the other time you'll just miss with your horns and do like three damage and be like, I paid 300 points for this, you know? So I get why people don't want to play a lot of Stonehorn Beast Riders, and they usually do not. I put three in here because they still count as ten. And they have something like twelve attacks. Twelve twelve or more attacks net, no matter what the attacks are. And that's a little extra for a year old bad, you know, six to hit, a few more mortal wounds sprinkling around. It's another vulture. And when I do it this way, I get to play five monsters in the list which is 50 capturing bodies. And if you play with one Stonehorn Beast Rider and then take that 600 points for the other two Stonehorn Beast Riders and shimmy it all around in the rest of the list, maybe you get yourself a Frost Lord on Stonehorn because you should probably always be playing one, even though this, this list doesn't. I probably don't need to tell people that you should always be playing with a Frost Lord on Stonehorn because it's, once again, that Venn diagram of fun and competitive. It is a neutron star at the very center of that. It's the most fun ever. Even in a gutbuster army, I would play a Frostlord on Stonehorn, and just and then sixteen hundred points, which is the majority in gutbuster stuff, because Frostlord on Stonehorn is simply too fun. Um, or play more Mornfang if you want. Like there, these that, are, the, these are the options you can you can play with here. That's why I wanted to ask you because when I've played a Yulebad in the past, um, people have had uh, maybe one less Beast Rider, maybe two less Beast Riders, but they've had. Uh, some more chunky Mornfen pack. But again, this is kind of why it's just an option. If you don't want to have five behemoths and you want more chaff, cool. Drop one of those beast riders, increase those Mornfen pack into as, as two units of, of four. Um, uh, turn that, turn that, that stone horn from a husk guard into a frost Lord, uh, turn that thunder husk into a, uh, a stone horn, whatever you want to do. Right. But yeah. And to be, to be very clear, Let's take this list right here. Um, this can probably four and one. If you don't play against like your worst matchups, you get a little lucky, you play well, you know, the standard thing. This is like potentially a four and one army. Potentially. Let's say you only play one Stonehorn Beast Rider, and then you play some more Mornfang, and you exchange your Huskard on Thunder Tusk for a Frost Lord. And then you play another Frost Lord. So your army is Huskard, double Frost Lord, one Beast Rider, and then Mornfang to fill it up. 
that army is also a four and one army. You're just playing it differently. Mm. So it's it's not like this is the better list and what everyone's doing. Like uh, this is the secret, you know, GW hates them. Find out how to play five monsters and be better than everyone. It's not that kind of thing. It's just, um, these are the changes you're making because you want to try out 50 capturing bodies instead of 40, or you have a play style difference that you want to try out versus the four monster version or the bunch of more fang version or whatever. No, that's brilliant. And the final quick one is, um, do you have any particular scenarios that you like to go first on? Because I know you said that we mostly want to go uh, second uh, in mm -hmm. most situations. Is there any particular ones that you like to go first? Uh, this has decreased with losing Ethereal Amulet. Uh, remember when the army as a whole, the book, I talked about it had three main strengths. It used to have four main strengths. Uh, we used to have a dedicated fast anvil that we could really leverage on battle plans. And it really gave us a different way to play to have an advantage on all of the scenarios that care about how long you're capturing some objective for. And so I'm thinking about stuff like um, old duality of death, you know, or uh, what's the other one? Um, Anyway, there's there are a bunch, there are a few battle plans that care about how long you're snowballing points on one particular objective, yeah. and those I would tend to go first for. I would choose to go first because I just want to get there with this impossible to kill thing and just sit on it and just pitch a tent, roast some marshmallows, collect my points, you know. But default position for all battle plans across the board. I feel like we're just we're fifty five percent. Just fifty-five percent sitting, sitting pretty. We're not like brutally screwed on on any battle plans necessarily. I like to see, you know, total conquest is very good for us, specifically um, because you get the recapturing bonus on those guys, and I like to let my opponent get it and then just crush them and take two points, and now we're even again. And you get bonus points for leaders taking them, and your leaders are what often take them because your leaders are gigantic monsters. And so you just get bonus bonus points for that. It's very nice. Uh, specifically, the diamond pattern on Total Conquest is very nice because it's harder for their giant blob to just sit in the middle of everything and shift, depending. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to, like, um, what's the other one? Shifting Objectives, I think, or Better Part of Valor, uh, where it's uh, not diamond, but it's square, but it's the same thing. Shifting? Is it shifting? I think it's shifting where... It's much easier for a giant blob to just sit there and like collect points, and it's it's hard to do stuff with. Um, better part of Valor is very nice because the spin cycle tactic is on full center stage there, and um, the giant like six and eight objective battle plans aren't really so bad for you. In fact, I find myself pretty feeling pretty good against non-summoning lists on six and eight objective battle plans. Because our army is very mobile, and more than that, it's very modal, M-O-D-A-L. So it's mobile and modal, meaning a lot of armies have, here's my 30-man unit for 360, and then my 280 points worth of heroes that make that good. And then here's my other 30-man for 360, and my 
300 points of stuff that makes that good, and then my one monster hero, and then battalions and only spells, and that's the army. Well, they can only go in two places, plus a monster. And a Beast Claw army can go in four or five, and just yeah. be pretty quality, you know? And you don't have all this ancillary stuff that does nothing but makes something else better, but it itself is just like a five-wound, four-inch move hero that can't do anything. And sometimes maybe you, you know, if you kill some linchpin, now they have like 300 points of just support that doesn't do, any, that doesn't do anything. Like everything you lose in a Beast Claw army is just, all right, yeah, I have five monster trucks. You killed one. Now I have four monster trucks. And they're all still driving around and doing whatever. Like you don't have all this baggage. Um, you you played the two strengths of the game, and that is uh, movement and combat. You know, you, your combat is going to clear off bodies. Your movement is going to secure objectives and get yourself in a prime position. And you play both of those well. So I think you're right. Um, I, I, I like some of those. If I was a player uh, playing with this type of army as well, I'd be thinking about my opponent's deployment. So are they deploying on the line as well as the distance between deployment zones? So some of the scenarios mm -hmm. might only have 15 inches uh, or a much shorter distance between the two opponents. So by going first, you know that you've got a base movement of 12 or a base movement of 14. You've guaranteed yourself a three-inch charge. Um, so going first, there's literally no risk. But then if you've got a much larger deployment zone, let's say um, there's 24 inches between you, you know that the charge is a lot harder to achieve. Uh, and then let's say your opponent doesn't deploy on the deployment line, they deploy on the, the seven or the nine line then you've made it nearly impossible to charge in turn one, so you're better off giving it over. And if the opponent doesn't move, then they've wasted a movement, a combat, a shooting, and a magic phase as well. So, um, Yeah, and um, on that point, a 24-inch deployment between your opponent and me, I'm never trying to alpha. I'm not trying to roll a 10, you know. My, my leader has a 14-inch move, 15 if he's king of beasts means it's a nine inch charge i'm not trying to roll a nine inch charge it's not worth it it's not worth it especially when it's only um, one guy like everybody else it nah um if a lot of times when you're setting up on the line and your beast claw your opponent is setting up way back because they're like i don't want to get alpha i almost never alpha strike i i think it's like generally a weaker strat for beast claw i leave the alpha strike to people who can drop from the sky and do it or who can double ambush of 12 eels onto the board and fly over chaff and have all this stuff that makes their alpha strike really work even if your opponent's trying to stop it for me uh, sometimes i might but i actually don't mind my opponent going setting up on the line because now the objectives are free reign hey cool now you have to move an extra six inches to get to all the objectives i wasn't going to alpha strike you anyway even though it really looks like it because of all my rules and I'm I'm putting up all the way to the line and stuff like that. So And that's the play, is that the threat potential people do that and um, mm -hmm. that actually rewards you for objective play. So um a lot of cool stuff there. Um uh yeah, yeah, there's a lot of considerations. I I would only say uh the, the scenario or the battle plan doesn't always determine who goes first, who shouldn't go first. There's probably right. a lot of other considerations like threat range like um, where they deploy, are they again, are they deploying uh, on the line? What's the distance mathematically? What would you do the first turn? Um, you know, can you destroy someone's threat pieces? You know, OBR, Lumineth, for example, 
they want to get off their buffs. So by hitting them first turn, um, which which more tribes and um, uh, the Auric War Clans do really well, is they can really shatter those lines early before your Teclases, before your OBR put up those those super hard defensive buffs. Yeah, and, get your deal um, tilt up and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, Although, or Heart, you could kind of take out that, but then who knows? But um, I would say one more thing about battalion or battle plans. Many of the battle plans now have a bonus victory point you can get for being some sort of category. Like if a leader controls it, you get a bonus point. And if a battle line controls it on this one, you get a bonus point. And if a monster controls it on this one, you get a bonus point. This is perfect for Beast Claw because all of your dudes are either monsters, leaders, or battle line and often more than one you have battle line that is a monster and leader that is a monster and so on so you're pretty much able to scoop up bonus victory points on all the bonus victory point battle plans and that's really strong anyway that's my last takeaway for the scenarios no that's that's a really good point it's a really good point um and there are some scenarios that reward you for going second and there's a whole bunch of stuff so um yeah yeah um something to consider but again because you've got so many uh, you've got so many less models in your opponent. Uh, you've got to think through those decisions probably because they're not as forgiving, right? Like I've got, again, I go back to my gits, for example. I've got 160 gits on the table. Uh, I I can be pretty pretty safe knowing that if I got turn one charged, I can absorb that. But for someone like you, you know, with so many little models, you need to think about those decisions a little bit better mm -hmm. uh, in order to not lose those big fatalities. Yeah, you're not regenerating guys. You're not endless legions getting a unit back you're not summoning you lose a guy and yeah. the other list that you've got here and um i love it it's called the butterbean uh the army so butterbean um i'll let you share the story but what have we got in this army is you haven't chosen a more tribe so i'd love in a minute you share why you've chosen not to go with a, a tribe but you've come from the world of akshi um you've got a tyrant which is a general command trait as crushing a bulk with the artifact of the Sky Titan Scatter Pistols, uh, the big name Fate Seeker. You've also got a Frost Lord on Stonehorn with Incandescent Rage Blade, as well as the Black Clatterhorn. You've got eight Iron Guts, eight Iron Guts, eight Iron Guts, uh, and you also have the Tyrant's Gut Guard. I've never seen this Tyrant's Gut Guard. I literally have no idea what it does. I think it's an, un it's an underrated battalion, I'll say that. Tickle me curious because I, I don't think I've ever seen a list like this. But uh, take it away. Sh share, share a bit more about, about this list. I think we kind of know what a, a Stonehorn does. But yeah, yeah. how does a Tyrant and the Iron Guts and then this battalion all kind of wrap this up in a nice little bow? So Butterbean, if the audience isn't familiar is a boxer from the 90s, late 90s, who was something like 400 pounds fighting weight, yeah. uh, five, six, five, ten at best, maybe. Um, he wasn't the greatest boxer, even by his own admittance. Uh, and opponents would very much underestimate him. What, what's a guy like? How do you beat a guy like that? Well, you just tire him out, right? Like, Tire him out, knock him down, but don't get hit because his hands are way faster than you think. And if you catch the overhand right, your head's spinning around and you're on the ground. It's um, It was kind of like Homer Simpson when he was a boxer, yeah. except he actually could fight. He yeah, actually, while he, he didn't push them over, he actually would actually hit them. Yeah. And and he could, I mean, he had a, he had a fucking uh, iron jaw, right? So 
people would punch him for two rounds and he just didn't care. So that's, I mean, that's Gutbuster. To me, Gutbusters is Butterbean. Um, you're not doing anything crazy. You're not like particularly good at, you know, you don't have shenanigans. You don't have tricks and teleports and, you know, all this, all these bells and whistles and cheaty face cheating powers that everybody else has. But you can take a punch and don't get hit because you're going to get knocked out. And that's, that's Gutbusters. So, and they kind of look like him, to be honest, except like 12 feet tall. But so why did I choose no Ma tribe? Because I kind of wanted to illustrate that you don't have to choose one. This is different than some armies, like you mentioned before. And I didn't choose a Ma tribe, even though it is competitively simply better to always choose a subfaction. Because I wanted to make the tyrant into an Omega Chad, because that's fun. And this is the fun list. And so Tyrant's the general, command trait crushing bulk, which means he counts as a monster for his impact hits on the charge. Meaning when he charges something, he's rolling his seven or eight dice or whatever he rolled for the charge, and all the four-ups are mortal wounds. Brilliant. So this dude is doing the same five mortal wounds on the charge that the Frost Lord on Stonehorn in the same list is, and he's a dude on foot. He if, has, we play, if we're playing a game, I would never think about that. I would never remember it. I'll be in the heat of the yeah. moment, and I'm looking at this tyrant. I'm like, eh, okay, it's a tyrant. And then, like, you'll tell me the rule. You'll you'll tell me when yeah, we talk about that list. It's like this. Uh, this <laughs> I will not remember cheap. it. And then four turns later, when it's my tyrant with three wounds left versus like you know your slaughter priest at full life, and I'm like, all right, I charge a slaughter priest. All right, he's dead in the charge phase. Pile into the other guy. Started to, wait, he's dead in the charge. Yeah, he's full to dead in the charge phase. Like, oh, okay. And then the artifacts, Sky Titan Scatter Pistols. So then I just started blasting. This gives him six shots with his pistols. And his pistols actually aren't that bad. It's just that they only have two shots. This gives him six of them. So at any range that he could charge, he also can shoot. And so now this guy is shooting six times with his D3 damage pistols, charging in as if he were a monster. Fate Seeker gives him a three-up armor save. Uh, when he's fighting heroes or monsters, his one weapon is doing like a D6 damage. Sixes to hit on the other weapon are proccing a mortal or three mortals against special stuff. This guy is, I mean, it's Omega Tyrant Chad. Like this guy is basically a monster who happens to have a much smaller base size. And that's hilarious. And it's fun. And so we we did that for the fun list. Um, also because it's a fun list, took a Frost Lord on Stonehorn because it's the most fun you can have in the book. Uh, we didn't go Balderhead, so he doesn't have Dig Deep Your Heels and he doesn't have the cool artifact. But Black Clatterhorn lets the horns hit on threes anyway. So calls it even. Uh, for the artifact, Incandescent Rageblade is the Akshi artifact. It gives your sixes to hit. Explode Oh, yeah. And he only has four frost spear attacks, but exploding hits on rend one damage three, not bad. As for right. the uh, units, um, we went for. I mean, the units here, you just have so many options uh, when playing these these guys. Um, each one specifically, the first, second, and the third are chosen for much different reasons. I chose the first eight iron guts because. Eight is the exact amount you want to get the monster charges for your um, charge ability. 
and they have two inch reach on their weapons. So all eight are always getting to attack. This is huge. So two ranks of these guys can fight big. Without buffs, these guys are doing 30 damage. Mm -hmm. Their iron guts are so punchy. I mean, pure, pure glass cannons. I was just reading the rules for the Iron Gut again. So the Gut Guard. I I've never seen this. I know uh, Doom and Darkness was running around the junk mob. And again, that was something that I've never mm -hmm. seen on the table. Uh, I was hoping he'd go 5-0 and and lead us to a junk mob meta. Unfortunately, he couldn't do that. But I'm looking at this. And so the, the Tyrant Guard, you'd have to have a Tyrant, one to three units of Iron Guts and zero to two Iron Blasters. So if you want to bring Iron Blasters in, this is an option. Uh, the ability you're going to get for the battalion, uh, this is, by the way, looks like this list, again, is going to be two drops, but because uh, the, the stone horn doesn't fit into this. Mm -hmm. But what the, the tyrant's gut guard gives you is roll a dice each time you allocate a wound or a mortal wound to a friendly tyrant from this battalion while it's within three inches of a friendly iron guts unit from the battalion. So all three of those would be uh, included here. On a full plus, that wound or mortal wound is negated. The wound of iron guts, sorry, you, sorry, that unit of iron guts then suffers one mortal wound. So you're bouncing off uh, damage from the tyrant to the iron guts on a four plus. Yeah, and to be clear, competitively, that sucks. Your iron guts are way more valuable than your tyrant. If this did the opposite of what it does in the book, it would be a better battalion. You would gladly kill your tyrant to keep your iron guts alive. Because after turn one, he's pounded both of them to make him Battleshock immune for the whole game. And his work is done. Anything else he, has, he does after that is just icing. But in this list, uh, it makes your Tyrant even more of a Chad. And that's the point. Also, it makes us two drop. So we're still getting to go for those double turns. And double turns are fun. And it's the fun list. And um, I actually think Tyrant's Gut Guard has a reasonable competitive Gut Buster battalion option um just in the game itself not like i mean not playing 24 iron guts right but some sort of tyrant's gut guard is like a reasonable battalion to build a competitive gut buzzers list off of i think even though the ability isn't very good because it greatly reduces your drops it gives you an extra artifact which you really wanted because you wanted to give frost sword an artifact specifically in this list because that's more fun um but yeah anyway so i played Would the you would you drop some of those iron guts down to bring yourself in an iron blaster or two? Um, that's an option. There's a there's a few different ways you could go to like make this more competitive if you wanted to. But first things first, the beauty of this list is in its simplicity. There's no extraneous units that don't do anything. Every single unit in here slaps. And that's really important. Uh, you're not trying to... You know, you're not trying to roll sevens to put your buffs on some unit to make sure that it's good. And you don't have to keep some hero close to whatever. Everybody can just go in a different direction and do whatever. And anything your opponent charges and does a bunch of damage, any the every unit of yours that's near that has enough damage to kill it, whatever it is. Like eight iron guts will probably kill Nagash. They can probably kill most units that don't have like a bunch of debuffs or something or things like that. Iron Guts do tons of damage just themselves. They almost don't need all those Slaughter Priest style buffs that you could bring. Um, unless you're talking about like a heavy debuff opponent armor. 
something like that. But if you wanted to make this this list a little more competitive and a little less like hilarious fun, you would certainly choose a sub-faction, first of all, and it would probably be Winterbite. Just so you can't get shot too hard, you know, early on with your guys on your team. And like you said with the Iron Blaster, there's a legit um, Iron Blaster shooting option now, especially after Ethereal left, where you'd put Trophy Rack on your Tyrant, which gives people around him plus one to hit heroes and monsters, which is usually what you would want to shoot with them, right? So it makes perfect sense. And then um, you can also go... Sorry, I, I kind of went in two different ways ways really quickly. The first one is you'd probably go Winter's Bite to make this into a more competitive list and switch out like one thing for some other thing and another thing for some other thing. Or that's like A. And B is if you want to turn this into a good shooting list, then you go under guts. Yeah. Winter Bite. And yeah, I just I didn't want to conflate the two because I'm talking about No, and I'm seeing in the chat as well, they're talking about Winter Bite um for the with, with oh, sorry, I the iron guts as well. Um and I'm seeing some good shout outs as well, bringing in Rib Cracker from the the lore of gut magic to um to subtract minus one to the save characteristics of an opponent uh within 18 when you combine mm -hmm. that with the iron guts. Yeah, the there's positives and negatives to going under guts and having cannons. It gives you so you know how OZR Phone Reapers, if they did not have catapults, the army would be straight bad, in my opinion. Like it would be an actually not very competitive army, in my personal opinion, if it didn't have catapults. But the fact that it does means that it gives the opponent a reason to come to you instead of just run away from you the whole game and score all the points, which is what would definitely happen against OBR if they weren't lobbing five damage all over the place, right? And so if you want to put something like that in here, you can have three or four cannons with a trophy rack on the tyrant in Underguts, making those cannons shoot twice. And this is something like, I can't remember how many points it was, something like 600 points, maybe only 500 something. And you can just drop it into here. And now you're sniping heroes, left, heroes and monsters left and right. Mm. And the rest of your army can just be tons of gluttons and stuff because it's like oh man gluttons they suck so bad against good armor well yeah that's a target priority problem not really a glutton problem uh, you have charge damage and ren two horns on frost lords and giant cannons that are ren two like that's what you use against the great armor and then the units your opponent have has that don't have great armor you roll a, a bucket of dice with exploding hits on gluttons, and then you're sort of fine, right? The problem with Underguts and all the cannons and stuff is that it's a lot of points for what you get. It isn't as consistent as I would like for the points you're spending, and it gobbles up all of your options. It's like a vacuum cleaner for every option when you're building your army. It's It feels like I'm building a Sylvaneth army, except in Maw Tribes, where... You have to play with a battalion because it requires a second artifact because the second artifact has to be trophy rack. You have to play with a tyrant, which you probably don't want to in a competitive list for the most part because slaughter masters cost 20 points less and they're just sort of better as um, force multiplication powers. You know, they got the spin the wheel of value for the one in three plus one to hit. They got a spell. Sometimes they got two spells if you're going blood go, right? So, um, 
and it's choosing your sub-faction, so you can't choose any other sub-faction either. So it's sort mm -hmm. of like it devours every option you have, and it's a little more expensive than you would like for what you're getting out of it, but it's such a strong effect, and cannons are sweet that I'm not I'm not looking down at anyone for choosing that. Also, no, the like, cannons are pretty sweet. You can play a Eurobad. You can play like a minimum-sized Eurobad, and then be in Underguts and just put three cannons in there. That's pretty cool. It's a it's almost a drag and drop, uh, except for all the options it's eating up. So it's it's kind of interesting. And yes, again, this, it comes, and D six damage is very swingy, as Chat is saying. Yes, that's it comes back to the, the narrative of this whole episode, and that is you can this book is quite robust. You can clearly see that this while is primarily a, a gut buster build. We still bring in a stone horn to play a role. Uh, those points could be allocated somewhere else into bringing in those iron blasters. You could bring in a butcher. You could bring in uh, an icebrow hunter and some some frost uh, frost sabers to do a bit of side board shenanigans mm -hmm. you could bring in some man eaters you could bring in you know there's yeah. so many you, you could you could ch change this list you know what i mean like if there's yeah, something yeah. that you wanted to bring in or change your this is not your style uh again you do you this is your hobby uh there are different builds for different things but i think ultimately what we're hearing is synergy is key you want to think about how you make the most of your investments because they are expensive investments you're not throwing around 100 point units you are truly doubling down on these these 400 point heroes or 400 point units yeah that's pretty uh, much in, mo in most spending, cases that's pretty much what you're spending on anything um you know 12 gluttons is 400 eight iron guts is 440 a frost lord on stonehorn is 400. Uh, if you want to do the frost saber bomb with a hunter combo thing it costs about 400 to do that like yeah. most of the things you're buying in this army are just giant chunks of one fifth of an army so i was going to say it's almost like you're chunking with 400 points a, a give or yeah. take so mm -hmm. it's almost like you've got five investments how do you make the most of your five investments again give or take yeah, as as chat is saying right now, Skull is nasty, and the cat grenade does indeed delete one unit. But then it is wiped out like the snows of yesteryear when anything looks at it after that, and you don't have the command points to do the combo again. So it's like 20 damage, is that worth like 400 points once, and then the thing's dead? Probably not, but like, you know, it's an option. You can do it. And I Before I ask my hmm? final oh, sure. question, what's, what's a cat grenade? So cat grenade is... If um, I'm going to go to the page so I can read everything, but uh, you can take an Icebrow Hunter. And, oh, okay. <laughs> what? Yep, yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, you take an Icebrow Hunter, and uh, he can use a command point to give plus one attacks yep. to, cat, to Cat. And then you take a bunch of Cats, right? Yeah. And so he can, with Skull, mostly Skull just because you want extra command points. He actually has a War Scroll where you can drop a Cat with him, but. So you take, I don't know, eight cats, maybe 12. It depends on how many you're expecting to get in or whatever. And he drops down, cats drop down. They roll a six-inch charge because they get plus three from him. And then you spend like five command points. And your cats are sitting on like six or seven attacks a model. and it's But it's but it's all rend one, damage one. And they're only hitting like, you know, they're hitting on fours. It, you're, you're spending... A crazy amount of resources to do something like on average 20 damage to four ups yeah and then all of your cat you're out of resources so you can never do that again 
and all your cats are on a six up save. So they're just all dead <laughs> if anything hits them. Okay. But I mean, it's a cat grenade. It, it does work. It does what it's supposed to do. It's just, do you want that when you could have just played a frostbite on Stonehorn and done the 20 damage anyway? But then when something attacks it, like it might not die, right? So anyway, it's... All right, I, I, all right, cool. From now on, there's now called the cat grenade. I've never heard the cat grenade in my yeah. life. Mm -hmm. I, I was imagining an alternative blood vulture, but instead of like a, a big vulture going at your opponent, you throw some type of, I don't know, frost saber cat somehow. Maybe it's like a combination with the gargant throws a cat at somebody. Yeah, yeah. When the book, um, when the book first came out, everybody noticed the combo, and I did all this math, and I'm like, okay, if you spend this much points, and get this many command points, then how much damage does it do? Okay, what if I use twelve cats? All right, what if I use ten cats? What if I have an extra command? And from the cheapest version all the way up to the most expensive, it was just never worth like the the investment. Unfortunately, it had bad returns, but had bad ROI. In other words. I like it. I, I do. I do like. I, I do like the Icebrow Hunter and the cats. I keep bringing them up because I am a big fan of them, um, especially being able to be brought on from the side of the board. So mm -hmm. just gives you that little bit extra utility, and and it makes you uh, not one dimensional, just running up the board and trying to charge everything in your sight, because then you can come in from the side. You can challenge objectives. You could hold them back kind of late. Um, I do like that. Yeah, that, and you no um, longer need the battalion to drop cats with the hunter although you can only drop one unit of cats with the hunter it used to be you could drop like up to eight units or something but it's now it's just one and the battalion doesn't add to that so it's just one unit of cats hunter there you go um, opponents can be really good at trying to screen and trying to protect all the good stuff against your your charging stone horns but when you start asking another question which is how do i handle these charging stone horns on beast claw riders and try to zone out my objectives and my juicy buff pieces from the icebrow hunter with those cats and those cats are on a very small base you then start to really challenge your opponent even from the deployments uh, phase and either it will create opportunities for you with your stone horns because they've left a gap or they're going to leave something unguarded which your your uh, icebrow hunter and his cats are going to come in and uh claim or challenge and uh for me that's why i'm a big fan of the the icebrow I, I wouldn't put too many points into it but having that as an option is a wonderful utility piece yeah i've i've made lists with one hunter and six cats as like a mini like a mini cat grenade or you pretend it is with your opponent because usually when you're playing against an opponent, if they see Deep Strike or Ambush, they start just naturally bubble wrapping a little bit yeah. to respect it. And um, you're already winning then, like you've won. If they deploy more defensively because they're afraid that cats are going to drop down and one-shot this eight-wound hero that they really need, you don't even need to do that. In fact, that's what you would prefer. It's better that they deploy poorly than if they just didn't care and the cats landed. And so sometimes your opponent deploying unfavorably is already a victory for what you've put in your list. And if they call your block, it's actually kind of a bad thing. And you just keep it in the air then and wait until turn three when it matters more. Because yeah, it's not really that, you know. And if you need to, just start with them, start them on the table as pure chaff, and then they die. Okay. Just 200 points. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. It's something that I would play around with a lot with Legion of Night. I'd have a terror guys that would come in the side of the board at the very end. 
but I would, I would never actually put it in the side of the board. It was always a threat. So as I was deploying and, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd be a, a 10 drop or a seven drop. Um, they would be screening as if the terror guys is going to come from the side of the board. And that was never the plan. So yeah, that psychology and forcing to, to, to ruin potentially um, a deployment strategy uh, can be that victory in itself. So last question for you, because I've got work. Mm-hmm, um, sure. and you've got dinner. What have you, and we, we could talk for hours. This has been awesome. Um, this is literally almost like, a, this is almost like part one of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the duration we've had here. Yeah, I'm sorry um, that I didn't, I feel remiss that I didn't even know they're wizards at all. And it's such a huge Look, component of their book, but talk, this talking series was meant to be a 90 minute series. We've clearly just broken, okay. broken oh. the, we've like double parted, but that's good. Like hey, I think that's just for, for ogre players have bigger brains. There's more tactics to the army. This is clearly proof of that. So, you know, what can, can you confirm? <laughs> Look, the, 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 I think one of the, the reasons, one of the many reasons I wanted to jump on here with you, Joe, is because the book's been out now for almost 12 months. Mm-hmm. And since since the book dropped, we've had changes. We've had Lumineth come in. We've had Slaves to Darkness. We've had Zench. We've had KO. We've had all these changes, right? And the faction focuses and the other videos that people have done when those books have been released and we're like, hey, this is the best thing, that changes and I remember when Beast Claw Raiders very first come out, it was all about Stonehorns. Mm-hmm. And then Stonehorns got changes with their skeleton. And then it was all about the Thunder Tusks. And then we're back to Stonehorns. So the, it always constantly changes. And I think where I've really appreciated your insights is not what you're taking, but rather why you're taking it. So that as the meta shifts, as it evolves, as Dark Ensign, Dark Elves and Vampire, vampire Pirates or whatever, whatever comes next, we're prepared to make better decisions and how we can kind of modify our ogre lists. And I think you've given us good logic and how to make the most of this book. Yeah, I think so. So the last question, (laughs) so the last question, uh, now that I've just appreciated your, your amazing insights for almost three hours, the final question I've got is based off all of the experience that you have had playing with this army and you have a lot, it's not like you just picked up this book when it very first came out. You have been playing Beast Claw Raiders since Beast Claw Raiders came out many, many years ago. What have you learned over your time that through your experience, you, you may not pick up, you may not appreciate, you may not know when you very first grabbed this army from all your experience and your insights. Very deep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> summarize, su- summarize years of experience in like 30 right. seconds. That basically is what I'm saying. So a very broad but important point I'd like to make that is um, very related to this question is um, the experience playing an army that is trash. You have people online, sometimes me because it's funny, it's fun and funny too, that call units, armies, factions, battle tomes, right? This is trash. This is OP. Like, when you play an army that for probably two years, I feel like Beast Claw was tied with Flesh Eater for just straight up kind of being the worst army that anyone ever really played. Um, but yet I still played them every year. I went to five tournaments a year. Can I pinpoint every tidbit of information I learned during that time? Not in the amount of time we have left. However, it was an extremely valuable situation to be in. 
Because when you play an army for any reason that happens to be really bad for a really long amount of time, you get great experience on the fundamentals such that when the new book comes out, you're able to 100% capitalize on every new thing you get immediately. And it's sort of like learning the basics and fundamentals and the meat and potatoes and stuff. I got an appreciation for how important the objective game is when I didn't have a chance in hell at winning the objective game for two years and yet playing the army all the time. And so suddenly Beast Call, oh, sorry, suddenly Maw Tribe's book comes out. And you have people that are playing pure Alpha Strike BCR, right? And they're like, nice, now I can finally run across the table and just smash everything. And I have all these people doing that. But the first thing that I always, that I started playing is I immediately just started playing it completely tempo. A tempo game that cared about objectives and was very careful with positioning and always thinking about how many points I'm going to score here and retreating all the time, keeping this thing alive, luring a person over here, moving the whole army this way because that guy is slow and kind of spinning around. And so I began, and neither of these were wrong. Like Ian got, I think Ian went five and one with his Yorobad super alpha list. And I went four and one with my super tempo, you know, playing to the objectives and making sure all the monsters in the right place lists. And so like neither of us are wrong, but it, it gave me a good appreciation for an alternative way to play an army based on what you didn't have for so long. And then suddenly you're amazing at it. So I suppose specifically when it comes to Maw tribes, rather than just in the game itself, I would go back to those three, uh, those three first important things, speed, objectives, and drops. Damage is fun, but points win games. Think ahead. Choosing who goes first is hugely important, even when you don't choose to go first. It's always good to have that option. And leverage the fact that your guys are, have such great movement. And the power projection in the army is very good for an army that doesn't cheat. And by doesn't cheat, I mean, you know, you're not Hand of Gork, you're not Ambush, you're not Deep Strike, you're not teleporting every turn like Sylvan, uh, Slana, uh, sorry, Seraphon, pardon me. You're not teleporting or anything like that. But you just ger generally have very quick units that are all individually good. And that's very important too. I can move in five different directions with this army. And if I was on the list that everybody else is playing, I could move in four different distinct directions and put about 100% power into all four of those directions versus a lot of these Death Star giant blob and a bunch of stuff for a thousand points to support it that can only kind of crawl forward and hope the middle of the table is good enough to expand left and right, you know? And so that kind of stuff with the objective game is, is really um, important as well. Also, ABC. Always be charging. Don't get got. And don't get trapped in a tar pit. Don't be afraid to retreat, especially when you're going to roll priority the turn after you retreat. Don't get surrounded. Uh, everybody's playing blobs of men in this game. Fight against the blob menace.
you you've raised some really 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 good points and um i think the bloodlust um can be real with this army it, it's very strong it's very mobile it loves combat it rewards you for being in combat but just because you can doesn't mean you should just because i can drive with my my feet or i could drive with my, right. a car with my feet doesn't mean i should yeah. um and and i think what you've just said you know some things that uh people need to learn more and more about is things like retreating not in the heat of the moment a lot of people don't think about retreating as an option. They think about it as I'm going to fight my way out. I'm going to use metal crunchy to get my way out. I'm going to try to just get out of this. Mm. But actually the better decision was to retreat, go for an objective, challenge an objective, position yourself better for the late game. Uh, yes, you could kill this unit, but ultimately the way you win this game is by scoring more points, yeah. not kill points, victory points. Yeah. Mental checklist is pretty good. Um, for most decisions on the table. Like when you're about to do something, be like, wait a minute. All right, so why am I doing this? Why am I here? Why is my opponent here? What um what, what actually, else can I do? What, actually what is else can I do here? Doing here? You know? I want to go over there, but whenever you make one decision, you say no to like four other decisions. So what else could I do? What else could my opponent do? And you know, you don't have to like have a Socratic, you know. <laughs> philosophical session every time you're about to move some model but going through a quick checklist of all right now as far as this is concerned who's the control here and who's the beatdown who's winning who needs to you know who's the underdog at this exact moment that needs to do something to shift how the game is running so that they can start winning you know what is this unit really doing here um when this combat's over what's going to happen with that how close is it to anything else you know, um, the fact that you only have to move 10 guys or so, uh, you can spend an extra 30 seconds thinking about what to do because you're saving a minute, not moving a hundred netters, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, and that's actually one of the re many reasons why I'm so excited about the, the sons of Behemoth. i just, I cannot wait to do my version of the Beagle Raiders and literally have like nine models. Uh, points do win games, not 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 kind of killing your opponent. And this kind of comes back to, and uh, maybe this is just the very ending point, is that the question that was asked uh, from uh, Warsorin was uh, about deployment and, you know, when should you go first versus which is when you should give away first. And and I think that checklist is is very valuable in understanding, do I take or do I give, mm -hmm. you know, if you would play, a, you know, if I was to give, and this is, this comes with time, if I give away first turn, what could happen? They can move up six inches or they could run 12. Mm -hmm. They could cast a couple of spells, but unfortunately I'm out of range. Um, I'm out of range because they're all 18, 12 inch spells. Uh, maybe they put it in a spell on the table. Maybe they don't. They might score four objective points because they've moved up X amount of units um, and they'll get a command point. Okay, that's what I know about turn one. What can I do? I can do X, Y, and Z. Um, if I was to get double turn, what would happen? Because I'm giving away. So if I if I take first, right. then there's mm -hmm. a chance of turn one, turn two, and and it's that mental checklist that that while in a dice game we can never guarantee what's going to happen, we can help determine or predict uh, a, a better outcome through statistics, likelihood. Um, understanding what may or may not happen. So, yeah, the best 
Uh, it's the best you can hope for. I mean, if you line yourself up with an 80% chance, like you played such that right here you have an 80% chance of winning and you lose, was that the wrong decision? No. Because in like an 80% chance to win is so great. You actually played excellently. What should you change next time? Probably nothing. You just run it again. In 10 potential dimensions, you won that game in eight of them. So just do that again, right? Like, um, in a way, it's it's sort of like a, a competitive magic grinder thing that I learned, which is like being okay with losing or using losing as a teaching point and not actually being upset, where you're just trying to make the chances the highest for you. But then you always have to roll the dice. You have to pull the wheel. And chance is going to do whatever it's going to do. Um, if you made a mistake so that it was a 50% chance of winning instead of an 80%, well, then you should like, oh, okay, that sucks, but I'm happy with that loss because that loss won't happen next time because I just won't make that mistake next time. And the whole point is to continuously make your choices better. And so I'm not even upset when a loss is because of a play mistake because now I won't make that mistake again and I've improved. And you ask the question, how do I make this better? How do I guarantee this? How do I ensure that? Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll never, um, yeah, I, with, with losing, I'm happy to lose as long as I learn a lesson. And um, I've talked about this. I think it was the episode I had with, with Dan, uh, Dan Unsupervised from The Honest War Gamer. You know, we'll talk about sportsmanship. And I, at the end of a game, I often um, become very introverted. I'm an extroverted person by nature, but I become very introverted at the end. And some people think that I'm I'm upset or I'm I, I didn't have a good time, mm-hmm. but it's actually myself reflecting internally to say throughout that entire game, what were the decisions that I made, and could I get a better outcome if I had changed my my approach? Is there something either in my list tech, or is there a decision that I made from a priority role or giving a you know the unit selection in combat? Should I cast a different spell? Should I try to find ways to boost those spells? What could I do to ensure this doesn't happen again? And it's those those teaching moments in a loss. And I think that's where yourself playing ogres for a number of years in the bad times has taught you those lessons so you can reap the rewards, you know, during the good times. Yeah, and I think you have a very healthy way of looking at a game, you know, after it's done. Unfortunately, just due to personality, I happen to be the exact opposite. During the game, I'm I'm spending real uh, I'm spending actual effort to really socially interact with my opponent because I have 20 years of ingrained tournament magic uh, learned behavior pumped into my body of not interacting with the opponent, not trying to show off facial tics when something happens so that the opponent doesn't know that you just drew some card that, w- that was good for this situation, uh, trying to read the opponent's body language, um, thinking about multiple, okay, so there's three things that could happen here, and if I do any one of those, all right, then my opponent could do two things with A, two things with B, and two things with C, like a chess player, you know? And, like, and so I'm really like, just quiet and thinking about whatever I'm doing and people think that I'm like mad or or something like when I'm playing. And then the second the game ends, I'm bombarding my opponent with conversation. And I'm just like, so, okay, so on turn three, when you chose to do this, 
but you could have put this guy over here, over there. And then that meant that if you won priority that turn, this could have happened. Or you could have also done this thing, like how come you went for this one? Um, and this was a great decision on turn two where you chose to do this because you probably thought that I was gonna do that and I probably was. And I'm just like bombarding them with stuff. And usually they're like taken aback. They're like, oh, Wait I a second. These, these guys have been a mute for three hours and all of yeah, a sudden. Like, I thought you were mad. Chatting. And also I didn't think of that thing on turn three and I think I lost the game because I didn't do it. And I'm like, hey, you won't lose the next one. L losing is a lesson uh yeah. ask is ask yourself the right questions and you will learn if yeah. you if you ask the wrong questions you won't learn and you'll make the same mistakes and there's but... probably only positive things to take away from it if you lose a game because of your play mistake well then that's great because it means you won't lose the next game because you won't make that mistake so it's good if you lose the game because you flipped a coin and it landed tails that's great because next game you flip the coin and it lands heads and you win. Or you figure out something to do to make it an 80% chance. And if you lose the game because you had a 99% chance of winning and your opponent pulled out a 1 in 10 billion chance to win, that's great because you got the game to a place where he had to have a, he, your opponent had to have a cosmic event that caused him to win. And if you can get all your games to a 99%, bro, trophies on the wall, you know? Like yeah. If you're only getting screwed by 1%, that's great. Just run it again. You know, you're winning 99 games off of 100. So really, like, almost any loss is probably a good thing when you consider it in that respect. Unless, like, the only thing you care about is getting that trophy in this particular tournament, which is how every single Magic tournament was and how no Age of Sigmar tournaments are for the vast majority of people. I got a one... 100-person tournament 10 of them are really gunning for a placement and 90 of them are there to hey if i do well awesome but at least blah 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 all these other good things that are just going to happen anyway the, the winning, winning an age of sigma tournament is not going to change your life you are not going to go pro you're not going to be do, you're not you're not doing world tours you haven't got the million dollar prize pool yeah you're not getting uh, a trip to honolulu for the pro tour at a chance at forty thousand dollars you're getting a unit for an army that you don't own in a box that you're just going to resell for 40 percent off and it's one if, if there's right. one thing I'll, I'll end the show with is that there is no i believe truly that there is no such thing as failure there is only feedback just off the right questions you will learn you will get feedback uh to prove yourself but joe this has been awesome. Uh, we could we could keep talking for hours. This, if this was uh, a rant cast, we would be talking until you fell asleep or I got in trouble and got sacked for not being at work. But if people want to hear more from you, you do have a YouTube channel. You do stream on Twitch uh, live. Uh, is it every Monday? Yeah, it's every Monday at 6. And sometimes I'm playing video games and sometimes I'm not playing video games and we're just building lists on, on the internet or rating every army in the game on tiers, like which army is the easiest or hardest to transport, which army has the coolest looking centerpieces, you know, just like basically stuff is happening that I'm doing live, but really the show is for people to watch me live so that they can ask some question or argue about stuff in chat and just talk AOS. So go subscribe, go check out his YouTube and his Twitch channel. If you're not already uh, a fan, I can see a lot of people in the chat are a big fan. Thank you for everyone who have hung out for a long time. 
Uh, this has been great, and uh, I better I better go to work. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you don't get fired. Um, I appreciate. <laughs> it. Well, well, if I get fired, I guess I'm making more content, right? Yeah. Is that, hey, is if that you what get we fired, do now? you know, uh, there is no there is no failure. There is only, <laughs> you know, there's only opportunity, right? So, <laughs> and let's close out the show is ABCs. Don't forget your ABCs, Joe. What is it? Yeah. Don't forget your ABCs. Always be charging. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Mate, how good was that video? Surely it's going to go straight to the pool room. If you enjoyed that video, I would appreciate it if you crushed that like button. And if you have an opinion, leave it in the comments section. That lets YouTube know it's a great video and it should share it with other Age of Sigmar players. Cheers to all the bloody legends here on the screen who have financially supported AOS Coach on Patreon on YouTube members. Their contributions have helped me improve the quality, frequency, and the variety of content on this channel. So cheers, guys. You are bloody legends. Until the next video, don't forget to shoot the heroes and have a good one.